December 7, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. That's one small step for man. The events. One giant leap for mankind. The figures. Not quite to the morning, man. Let the word humanity. From this time and place. I take pride in the words. Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev. The drum. Tear down this wall. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents have come. Deep question. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I remember a conversation I had quite a long time ago now with an author of a book. The author had written a book about how John F. Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, just like the government always said it happened. And I'd been asking him a bunch of questions about conspiracies and, you know, this or that aspect of the Kennedy assassination. And only one of his answers, you know, really stands out in my mind now because it seems, you know, relevant on so many different fronts. You know, one of the answers on why it was so hard for some people to accept what this guy was purporting as the truth, he said, was because people are inherently very uncomfortable with the idea that a single nobody can have such an effect on all of our lives. It's more comforting, he said, to believe that powerful, you know, groups of people or conspiracies are actually running things, even if you think those powerful groups are nefarious. It's somehow comforting to think that somebody's in charge, that it's not all just random, you know, that a plane couldn't just drop from the sky and land on your house tomorrow. And I thought about this when I was thinking about, you know, someone, if somebody had asked you a question, who was the most important figure in the past hundred years? in terms of why the world has gone the way it did, you know, you would think of all these famous people whose names almost anyone who's halfway educated would recognize. And yet what's interesting is you could conceivably put the name down of somebody who was, historically speaking, you know, a nobody. Lee Harvey Oswald on the pages of the history books besides the Kennedy assassination is a nobody. He didn't do anything else of importance. But that event was huge, right? If he actually killed John F. Kennedy the way the narrative says, Lee Harvey Oswald changed the world. He changed the president instantly, right? I mean, how many of us have the potential to change who the president of the United States is? That lone gunman did, if he was indeed the lone gunman. The person who may be most responsible for the modern world, this entire world, including the 9-11 attacks that, you know, many commentators now say shape the modern world, Right? We live in an era of terrorism or the age of terrorism, you will hear them say, without them seeming to really understand that the age of terrorism supposedly sparked by the 9-11 attacks in the very, very, very early 21st century were themselves 
manifestations of an act of terrorism that launched us into the 20th century. If we actually live in an age of terrorism, as some of these people like to say, we've been living in it for more than 100 years. I think you could make the case that the most important individual in the last century is Gavrilo Princip. And Gavrilo Princip is a name very few of you will recognize. How can a person of so little achievement, you know, on the world stage, be perhaps credited with creating the entire world around us? I mean, if, if Gavrilo Princip doesn't live, is there a 9-11 attack ever? And if that was all he did, wouldn't he be important? He did a lot more than that. Gavrilo Princip is the reason there was a Second World War. Because Gavrilo Princip is the reason there was a first. And to be fair to Princip, if you could have gone to him and shown him the ramifications of what that one day uh, would do to the world, I, I think he'd be horrified. He wasn't trying you know, to unleash a global world war. He just became the latest example of someone pulling the trigger in a giant historical game of Russian roulette. A trigger that had been pulled several times already with nothing, you know, happening. Who would have thought that the time that Princip pulled it, that would be the time that the, you know, metaphorical revolver pointed at the skull of the old world shot a bullet into its brain? Perhaps... Princip and his compatriots would have thought that, you know, sometimes when you're trying to create a new world, you have to utterly destroy the old one. And the people in that old world were not naive about the potential for someone like a princip to do what they did. I mean, Otto von Bismarck, one of the greatest diplomats of 19th century Europe, perhaps the greatest diplomat Germany ever produced, famously said that if there was going to be some giant global conflict, it was going to probably break out because of some damn fool event in the Balkans. Gavrilo Princip shot two people in the city of Sarajevo, smack dab in the Balkans, a place that Otto von Bismarck had famously said was not worth the bones of a single Pomeranian grenadier. It would cost a hell of a lot more than that. And Princip becomes yet another example in history, proving to us that Sometimes when it comes to something like terrorism, in this era, by the way, when we try desperately to keep weapons of mass destruction out of the terrorist's hands because we're afraid they'll be able to kill more people with such weapons, we forget that sometimes it's not about how many people you kill. Sometimes it's about who they are. And often, it's not the terrorist act that changes the world. It's the response of the victims, you know, that does. Gavrilo Princip killed two people, and he did so in a way that almost makes you believe in fate. And truthfully, I'm not much of a fate believer, but one of the things I like about history is how it forces me to challenge some of my own preconceptions and certainly make me think about other possibilities. I've always thought, for example, that history unfolds for chaotic reasons. You know, that it's somewhat random, that millions of people going about their lives in their own ways, with trends and forces acting upon them, and people in important positions making decisions, and all this together creates a dynamic that's completely unpredictable, as I said, somewhat chaotic and random, and unfolds into the future. 
I think my logical side of the brain appreciates that sort of viewpoint. The problem is, is that sometimes history confronts us with events where the logical part of at least my brain wants to flip sides and wants to logically defend what I consider to be the more illogical point of view. In this case, the logical part of my brain will sometimes shift and try to defend something like fate or destiny or predetermination. Those to me are the two ends of the scale, chaos on one side and randomness on one side and fate and predestination on the other. And there's this weird twilight zone where the two sort of intersect. And that event that happened in late June 1914 is one of the best examples you'll find from history where you know, the, the logical side of your brain stands a pretty good chance of flipping and trying to defend the illogical position that this is somehow predestined. I mean, let me challenge you with a similar kind of analogy. Take the John F. Kennedy assassination, for example, and imagine that in addition to Lee Harvey Oswald up at the Texas School Book Depository, you have a, another assassin on the grassy knoll, as has sometimes been suggested. And that in this JFK assassination attempt, Oswald misses. And the bullet strikes the ground, maybe injures some passersby, and everybody realizes an assassination attempt is happening, and the Secret Service get on the car and they speed away past the grassy knoll, past the other assassin who never gets a shot at President Kennedy, and then President Kennedy's gone. And no one knows what to do, no one's quite sure what happens, and then, you know, later on, all of a sudden, while the assassin on the grassy knoll is probably trying to just figure out, okay, maybe what do I do now? The car with the president and his wife show up right down the road again, past the Texas School Book Depository, right to the grassy knoll where it proceeds to stall and stop. What are the odds of that? Kind of kooky, huh? History can be that way. Well, on June 28th, 1914... Gavrilo Princip, and from six to some sources say 20 assassins, if you believe some of the people who claim to have taken part in these assassination attempts, show up in Sarajevo with murder on their minds. They want to kill the, uh, the governing figure um, in Sarajevo, the person who is sort of the Prince Charles, plays the same role Prince Charles plays in the British monarchy right now, in the monarchy of the country that are the overlords in Sarajevo, a country that doesn't exist anymore called Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary is led by a really old, very well-loved guy named Franz Joseph, who's going to die soon because he's very old. And the person who will take over when Franz Joseph dies is this guy coming on a visit to Sarajevo the Prince Charles of his country, although unlike Prince Charles, whose role is completely ceremonial, this guy will actually have some real power when he gets the throne. And for some, you know, now when you look back on it, it looks like a stupid reason. This guy, whose name is Archduke Franz Ferdinand, has decided to go to Sarajevo and watch military maneuvers, which happen to coincide with the anniversary of the most emotionally important, heart-wrenching you know, battlefield loss in all Serb history, the Battle of Kosovo, way back from hundreds and hundreds of years before this time period. Serb nationalists, and the Serbs are very, very patriotic even today, even more so back in 1914, look at this as a slap in the face. 
To them, Sarajevo is Slavic and should be part of at least a pan-Slavic country or maybe part of Serbia. There had been Balkan wars for the last decade, you know, concerned with many of these nationalistic questions. Who should own these areas? And it had been in the hands of the Ottoman Turks, who the Slavs definitely feel shouldn't have been running the place. And it was transferred to the hands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which the Serb nationalists still don't feel should be running the place. And now the Archduke was coming on the anniversary of this historic defeat, you know, from the Serb nationalist viewpoint, to rub their nose in the fact that Sarajevo is still held by a big non-Slavic empire. And they're going to make Franz Ferdinand pay for that. And in a remarkably similar situation to the Kennedy assassination, Ferdinand's route for his motorcade is published ahead of time, He's going to be arriving and going down the main boulevards in an open car with his wife sitting next to him. These multiple assassins line themselves up at various intervals along the parade route and plan to kill the Archduke as soon as they can. The Archduke's car is either going too fast or there are too many other Serbs in the crowd nearby the first few assassins, so the first few assassins don't try to make a run at him. Eventually, he passes one guy who runs out from the crowd with a bomb. Really more of a hand grenade would be a good way to describe it today. And he flings this hand grenade at the Archduke's open car. In a very athletic maneuver, the Archduke sees it, ducks behind the door of the car, the hand grenade thing bounces off the car, hits the concrete on the street, and the fuse doesn't detonate until the next car in the motorcade has passed over it. It explodes. Some 20 people are badly hurt, you know, blood on the street, the whole thing, chaos, the crowd scatters. I mean, obviously, you know, the parade is over. The would-be assassin shoves a cyanide pill into his mouth and runs down, you know, to the side of the street and jumps in the river. But the cyanide pill is defective and only makes him vomit. And the river is only about six inches deep. So they capture him very quickly and run him off to be interrogated. And basically, it looks like the whole day has been a failure. The other assassins, at least some of them, are supposed to have seen the Archduke's car speeding off. I mean, there you go. There goes the day. The motorcade goes in a couple of different directions. Some people are taken to the hospital. The Archduke and his wife, you know, go to the town hall to lodge a complaint. They were going to make a speech anyway, but now they have... An earful to give the local officials. We come to your town and this is the reception we get, that kind of thing. And it looks, at least from this point, like, you know, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary just dodged a bullet, literally. There's some talk amongst the local officials about maybe figuring out a way to provide some increased security. But it doesn't seem to get very far because within an hour after the first attack, the Archduke and his wife and their small motorcade is... You know, off to the hospital, supposedly, you know, following an unplanned route for security reasons. There doesn't seem to be a lot of extra, you know, police protection. Uh, we're told that a, an aristocrat, Counts Franz von Herach, was on the running board of the Archduke's car, so maybe a little extra protection. It turns out, though, that the driver in one of those, you know, little screw-ups that affect the entire history of the world, turns out the driver of the Archduke's car did not realize they were not taking the original parade route and makes a wrong turn and ends up near a street corner where one of the assassins, Gavrilo Princep, maybe the guy on the grassy knoll with JFK, has stationed himself in the hopes that he might get a chance, 
you know, maybe just be in the right place when the Archduke had to come by again, perhaps on his way out of town. The Archduke's driver makes a wrong turn. He's told by somebody in the motorcade that he's made a wrong turn and that he has to back up. He stops the car in preparation for backing up right by where Gavrilo Princep is. Princep is on that street corner where the motorcade's car takes a wrong turn and then stops while backing up. And he sees his target from less than an hour before mere feet from him immobile and slightly below him in an open car. And he whips out his pistol and shoots him and his wife. What are the odds of that happening? It's considered to be one of the most wild coincidences in all human history. How many times do assassins in a failed assassination attempt get a second chance to go after their target. And we sometimes forget because it's such a monumental historical moment that this is still a terrorist attack and it was quite upsetting you know, to either witness or live through. Part of what makes these things seem so unreal is that we only have grainy black and white footage of even the events before that. You can go see movies where you can see the Archduke and his wife getting ready to go into the motorcade and you get an idea of what they looked like and it's all kind of moving a little too fast the way those old-fashioned movies were and everything, and it just doesn't look real. But you can go and you can see pictures because they have saved the tunic that the Archduke was wearing that day and you can see in living color that this was a bright, light blue tunic and the feathers on the helmet he was wearing were bright green. I mean, it must have been the most colorful sight imaginable, but after Princip fired, the most colorful sight imaginable became a lot more gory because there's a tear in the tunic where the bullet exited the Archduke's neck and the tunic is covered in what is unmistakably, even a hundred years later, blood. And blood has always been one of those things where when you see it in living color, there's nothing like it. I tend to believe human beings are programmed to react to that specific color, you know, always. And, and the difference between seeing blood in black and white and blood in color is there's nothing quite like that. The person who was closest to the whole thing was Count von Herach, who was on the running board not doing that great of a job, apparently, at security. And he says, as soon as the shots were fired, they reversed the car. And he later testified this, quote, As the car quickly reversed, a thin stream of blood spurted from His Highness's mouth onto my right cheek. As I was pulling out my handkerchief to wipe the blood away from his mouth, the Duchess cried out to him, For God's sake, what has happened to you? At that she slid off the seat and lay on the floor of the car with her face between his knees. I had no idea that she too was hit and thought that she had simply fainted with fright. Then I heard his imperial highness say, Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Stay alive for the children. At that I seized the archduke by the collar of his uniform to stop his head drooping forward and asked him if he was in great pain. He answered me quite distinctly, It is nothing. His face began to twist somewhat, but he went on repeating six or seven times, ever more faintly as he gradually lost consciousness, It's nothing. Then came a brief pause, followed by a convulsive rattle in his throat caused by the loss of blood. This ceased on arrival at the governor's residence. The two unconscious bodies were carried into the building where their death was soon established. End quote. 
And as a way to sort of prove that the old adage that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter is true, you have only to note that amongst Serbs today, many will consider Gavrilo Princip a heroic figure, someone who, you know, fired the first shots that started a chain of events that, while it will be horrible in both world wars for the Serbian people, eventually lead to, well, now, a time when those countries exist without, you know, having to be just simply a province in some other major superpower's territories. To Serbs, this guy was a hero, and to his compatriots, who all realized that they were like desperados at the time, they all realized that they would be immortalized too. And the actual circumstances, by the way, where this plot was hatched are worthy of a spy novel. And it's hard to believe it hasn't been romanticized to some degree, but nevertheless, if you ever do the definitive big screen dramatization of World War I, the whole story, I think you want to start your movie off with that scene inside that Belgrade cafe. Obscure place, kind of run down, lit only by candlelight, with a group of 19 and 20-year-old guys at a table. I always have to remind myself how young these people are. Not old enough to legally drink alcohol in the United States is how old these people are. And then we're told by people who were there that what happened is one of their number comes in the door, sits down at the table with them, and has a package with him. And he opens up the package, and inside is only one thing, a newspaper clipping. No note. You know, not signed it by anybody. No directions, just a newspaper clipping. And the clipping announces the imminent visit of the Archduke, Franz Ferdinand, to Sarajevo. One of the people who was at that table and lived to grow older and write about his experiences after he'd had time to, you know, go from terrorist to patriot, a guy named Borjov Jevcic. And if I mispronounce that, by the way, let's just get used to that. This is going to be perhaps the most linguistically and accentually challenging show I've ever done, and I'm sure to mangle many beautiful languages, uh, first and foremost, French. So my apologies to all of you in advance. I'm sorry. I have limitations, and you're going to hear them all. Um, Borchov Jevcic wrote years later this about that moment in history that will turn out to be so very important in a way that you can't imagine anyone at the table then would have known. They didn't know they were pulling the trigger again in that Russian roulette game, and they certainly didn't know that if they were, that was the time there was going to be a bullet in the chamber. Jevcic wrote, you know, after the fact, quote, a tiny clipping from a newspaper, mailed without comment from a secret band of terrorists in Zagreb, a capital of Croatia, to their comrades in Belgrade, was the torch which set the world afire with war in 1914. That bit of paper wrecked old, proud empires. It gave birth to new, free nations. I was one of the members of the terrorist band in Belgrade, which received it. And in those days, I and my companions were regarded as desperate criminals. A price was on our heads. Today my little band is seen in a different light, as pioneer patriots. It is recognized that our secret plans, hatched in an obscure cafe in the capital of old Serbia, have led to the independence of the new Yugoslavia, the United Nations set free from Austrian domination. End quote. Now, ever since that time, people have been wondering how connected that group was to outside entities. You know, are they just a bunch of, you know, small little, 
self-organized terror groups put together by a bunch of young kids, or are they working for a larger entity? Today, we would ask whether or not they were an example of state-sponsored terrorism. Was there a power behind this group, a rival power? I mean, and to understand how big of a deal this could be in a Europe that was already kind of unsteady and stressed in terms of stability, imagine the United States president you know, a president or two from now, we don't want to be controversial, down the road, is assassinated. And we have all the shock and anger and desire for retribution that comes with that. And then very shortly after an assassin is captured, we figure out that that assassin is working with the intelligence service of our most antagonistic enemy. I mean, think for a second how America would have reacted if Lee Harvey Oswald had been a hitman for Moscow And that came to light, which, by the way, is not that outrageous a thing to consider when you look at Oswald's ties to the Soviet Union and Cuba. Think about how the American people would have reacted, regardless of what the facts were, if they thought that was the case. And it's interesting to note that that's only a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, a year after World War III is potentially dodged, What do you think the leaders of the United States, after Kennedy is assassinated, are worried about in terms of worst-case scenarios? Do you think it might have occurred to them, men who by the early 1960s had grown up during and in the immediate years after the First World War, do you think they might have been seeing in their mind's eye history repeating itself? A world leader killed by a gunman in an open car with his wife sitting next to him in public by a young person maybe working for a foreign government and then having the world spiral out of control despite what the major players may have wanted? Do you think the people around Kennedy might have worried a little about how that might have turned out? Because those guys in that cafe very well may have been working for the Serbian intelligence service. There's been a lot written about this. No, no one knows for sure. They certainly have ties to groups that the United States today, if you know we were ranking groups from 1914, would probably call terrorists. Groups like Young Bosnia and another one called the Black Hand. And these groups had ties sometimes to the Serbian intelligence service. So you can believe the historian or the investigator you want to believe. It's a hot-button issue. Nonetheless, it isn't so important what really happened, just like it isn't so important whether or not Oswald was working for the Soviet Union. What's important is, what did the people on the ground affected by this think was happening? If the U.S. public thought Oswald was a hitman for Moscow, what happens then? The Austrians thought... The killing of their heir to the throne was an act of state-sponsored terrorism. And if it wasn't, they were going to make the case that it was anyway. There's really no doubt that the Austro-Hungarian Empire wanted to deal with this Serbian problem that had been bedeviling it for some time, once and for all. And to be honest, it's hard to blame them. I mean, the Serbians and the Slavs will counter with the idea that the Austro-Hungarians had not possessed this territory for very long. Bosnia-Herzegovina and places like Sarajevo had not been Austro-Hungarian for a long time. Nevertheless, you try to think of what nation state on the planet 
could put up with the nation over their border fomenting revolution in their country and eventually killing their public figures. I mean, imagine if you're an American, this happening in the United States. Imagine, say, Mexico creating instability and unrest and fomenting subversion and revolution in places like southern Texas and southern New Mexico and southern Arizona and southern California. And then eventually these, you know, revolutionaries that have been egged on by the Mexican intelligence service kill a major U.S. public figure. How long do you think the United States would put up with something like that? The reason it becomes so important, though, is because of all the many controversies in this story, one of the most enduring and important is whose fault everything that's about to happen is. You know, if this is a civil lawsuit, trying to figure out who's responsible for damages is a key part of this story. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire is in a position to decide to go or not to go to war. That seems to put them in the driver's seat responsibility-wise. There are Austrians, though, living at the time who basically say, what choice did they have? Take this Austrian writing after the war as a perfect example. He talks about Archduke Franz Ferdinand as one of the best friends the Slavs ever had. And in effect, Ferdinand actually was counseling his government to treat the Serbian problem more lightly because he was worried about it sparking a general war. When he was killed, it was seen as an extra perfidious act because the Slavic folks had killed a person who had been, you know, one of their better friends in the Austrian government. The Austrian that I was telling you about a second ago, after the First World War, wrote this, quote, When the news of the murder of Archduke Francis Ferdinand arrived in Munich, I happened to be sitting at home and heard of it only vaguely. I was at first seized with worry that the bullets may have been shot from the pistols of German students, who out of indignation at the heir's apparent continuous work of Slavization wanted to free the German people from this internal enemy. What the consequence of this would have been was easy to imagine. A new wave of persecutions, which now would have been justified and explained in the eyes of the whole world. But when, soon afterward, I heard the name of the supposed assassins, and moreover read that they had been identified as Serbs, a light shudder began to run through me at this vengeance of inscrutable destiny. The greatest friend of the Slavs had fallen beneath the bullets of Slavic fanatics. Anyone, he says, with constant occasion in the last years to observe the relation of Austria to Serbia, could not for a moment be in doubt that a stone had been set rolling whose course could no longer be arrested. Those who today, he writes, shower the Viennese government with reproaches on the form and content of this ultimatum it issued, do it in injustice. No other power in the world could have acted differently in the same situation and the same position. At her southeastern border, Austria possessed an inexorable and mortal enemy who at shorter and shorter intervals kept challenging the monarchy and would never have left off until the moment favorable for the shattering of the empire had arrived. End quote. I actually agree with that, and it makes me uncomfortable because the Austrian writing that statement after the First World War is the man most responsible for beginning the second, Adolf Hitler. The one line that I think Hitler aired in, though, was his line that this stone had been set rolling that nothing could arrest. 
because something could have arrested it, because something had been arresting it. There's a reason that the Austro-Hungarians hadn't attacked the Serbs already. And the reason was that the Serbs had a very powerful friend, the Russians, who considered themselves the traditional protectors of the Slavs. And the Serbs were not alone. Most of the powers of Europe had at least one, and usually more, powerful friends and allies. This was the era in European history, and it's often used as an example of one of the main reasons this whole story unfolds the way it does. This is the era of a very complex web of alliances that bind European countries to each other. It's perhaps the most enduring work of Otto von Bismarck, who we mentioned earlier, the 19th century German diplomat. Bismarck played a very large role in the foundation of modern Germany, but he also played a huge role in creating a system of alliances that both expanded, you know, Germany's possibilities, while at the same time preserving a general peace in Europe. There were wars between Napoleon and the First World War, there's no doubt about that, and some of them were directly the fault of Bismarck, but there wasn't a general European conflict involving all the major powers. And let's not forget that this is an era that we would today call a multipolar world, which is hard for us to understand in an era of one or two superpowers. Europe during this time period had at least five first-rate power states. Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Many people throw in Turkey and Italy too, which would make seven. These states all were bound to each other with complex alliance systems. And complex is the way Bismarck wanted it. Bismarck had set it up so that Basically, no matter what happened, he was in the driver's seat. And this worked unbelievably well, especially for German interests, but for European interests as a whole for a long time. But by the time 1914 rolls around, this genius who create this system that's so complex, only he knew how to run it. I've taken whole courses on Bismarckian diplomacy from professors who spent their whole life studying it, and they don't know why he did some of the things he did. While he was running it, it was fantastic. By the time 1914 rolls around, he hasn't been running it for some time. He'd been fired by the leader of Germany, and now this complex machine that the genius of Bismarck had created and run was being run by people who couldn't, you know, carry his jockstrap, is what we used to say. It was inevitable that something like that would break down. The reason that the Austro-Hungarians didn't just march into Serbia, you know, the minute they found out that the Serbs were responsible for killing their heir to the throne, is that they knew that would mean war with Russia. And that is something that the Austro-Hungarians were not prepared for. At least not without checking with their main friend on the world stage and finding out, you know, what they would do in that situation. Their main friend on the world stage was the German Empire. Now, the German Empire's attitude is very interesting. The first thing I have to keep reminding myself about the German Empire during this era is that it's relatively young. It's a new country almost. It was only founded in 1871. That's like 40 years before this era. And it wasn't just a new country. The minute it was proclaimed, and that's how it happened, you didn't proclaim England, you didn't proclaim France, but Germany as a modern nation, there was like a day where people signed papers and, okay, the next day, as of tomorrow, Germany exists. And the minute it existed, it was the most powerful land power in Europe with a larger 
population than France, traditionally the greatest land power in Europe up till this time period, and a larger, a faster birth rate and more industry. And how destabilizing would it be in our world today if a couple of different nations of moderate power signed a piece of paper tomorrow that united them into one country and that one now combined country was the most powerful country in the world? even if it was just the most powerful land power or the most powerful sea power. You can see how a bunch of nations that really didn't deserve a lot of the perks that the super great nations claim for themselves might all of a sudden do that once they turn themselves into a super nation. In 1871, with the creation of Germany, the Kaiserreich, you have an instant great power on the world stage. It was Prussia on steroids with a population like eight times as much and the rest of Germany with them militarized on the Prussian model with the Prussian king. That's a very destabilizing thing. And when that country begins to demand some of the perks that the other great powers have, you know, of their own, France, Great Britain, they've got all these colonies, all these other things, little Holland to them looks like they've got places all over the world. What's going on? sort of a factor of just having been there for a while. If you were around during the age of exploration and you had a bunch of ships out there, you were getting colonies. Germany didn't come around until most of the good stuff was taken. It was a cause of instability. Germany worried about being encircled. They had powers all around them that didn't wish them well. Historian Neil Ferguson, um, in, in a thing that I really thought was, was quite wonderful because here in the West, um, those of us who fought the German Empire, famously said that they had this sort of paranoia about being encircled. They were always worried about being encircled. Well, look at them on a map. They're born encircled. They're in Central Europe. They've got enemy powers all around them. Neil Ferguson said they weren't paranoid about being encircled. They were being encircled. And they were worried about an upcoming war. And up until Otto von Bismarck goes away, he had neutralized Russia. That was like one of the main things in his diplomatic alliance system. Keep the Russians happy. He said, in a five-superpower world, make sure your country's one of three, right? So it's always three against two. And Russia was always to be kept on your good side. When he is sacked and basically the foreign policy begins to be heavily influenced by the German Kaiser, the emperor. Kaiser means Caesar, by the way. So imagine, you know, calling your emperor Caesar in 1914. In any case, the Kaiser was a strange guy he sacks Bismarck because Bismarck's kind of talking down to him and is kind of running the show, and he's an old guy by then, and he's much revered. And, you know, how do you grow into your own man with that guy hanging over your shoulder? So he fires him, and he allows that machine to make vital mistakes Bismarck never would have made with that diplomatic machine. Vital mistake number one, he lost the Russians. He intentionally drove them away, basically, right into the hands of the French the historic German enemy, the one that they had beaten in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-1871 that allowed them to proclaim the German Empire, which they did in the French Palace of Versailles, which is sort of a rub-your-nose-in-it kind of thing. The Germans and the French assumed they'd fight each other again someday. Now the French were allied with the Russians, and now the German fears of encirclement had become a reality. The Germans had been trying to plan for what they're going to do with a war, you know, against an enemy to their west and another enemy to their east at the same time, right? How do you do that? And now this situation in Austria boils over, and the Austrians say to the Germans, listen, if we get into a war with Serbia, Russia's going to attack us. If Russia attacks us, where do you stand? And the Kaiser, this is controversial, but traditionally the Kaiser is supposed to have told the Austrians 
to go for it. Get Serbia done now. And some historians, again, this is all very controversial. Everybody has a different opinion. Um, But basically, the idea seems to be that the Kaiser believed that if it was done quickly enough, the Serbians could be crushed before the situation spiraled out of control in Europe. Because even as moderately intelligent, we'll we'll give him some credit that the Kaiser was, he knew that Europe was a powder keg. And the key thing that had to be avoided was this process almost a machine, the cranking up of a doomsday device that everybody who'd actually been present when the thinkers who dealt with the doomsday device explained what the doomsday device did understood that once the trigger on this thing was pulled, it was going to be really hard to turn it off. So if the Austrians could conquer the Serbians before the Russians, you know, flipped the doomsday device switch, it would all be okay. Again, a lot of controversy on this because this is, again, another one of those places where the war guilt question hinges. Did Germany tell Austria to go crush Serbia? And who cares if the Russians attack everybody? But of course, the problem wasn't that it would just involve the Russians attacking everybody. Because of that complex web of alliances we talked about earlier, other countries were going to get dragged into the conflict. This was something that was well understood by the intelligent heads of Europe. Take, for example, the British Prime Minister during this time period, Herbert Asquith. Asquith wrote a letter, a private letter that's come down to the history books, right after Serbia receives the ultimatum from Austria that's so important. And Asquith writes, quote, Austria has sent a bullying and humiliating ultimatum to Serbia, who cannot possibly comply with it, and then demanded an answer within 48 hours, failing which she will march. This means, almost inevitably, that Russia will come to the scene in defense of Serbia and in defiance of Austria. And if so, it's difficult for Germany and France to refrain from lending a hand to one side or the other, so that we are in measurable or imaginable distance of a real Armageddon. Happily, there seems to be no reason why we should be anything more than spectators. End quote. Well, that turned out, obviously, to be wishful thinking on the British Prime Minister's part. But historians like Neil Ferguson, who write revisionist works like The Pity of War, have suggested that if the British had stayed out, we'd have a better world today. For all sorts of reasons. I mean, he knocks off many of the biggest events of the 20th century, the most horrible, saying this never happens, that never happens, that never happens if Britain stays out of the war. Britain can stay out of the war because they don't have a hard alliance with anyone. They're not caught up in that web of alliances. Well, not too much. They have an understanding with France, an understanding with enough wiggle room so that there was a lot of talk in Britain about do we or don't we get involved in this whole thing. This whole thing was something that hadn't happened in a hundred years in Europe, a general European war. It hadn't happened since Napoleon, since Waterloo. And that war was so terrible, not just that war, the entire Napoleonic Wars and the wars of the French Revolution, that era from like 1789 to 1815, so awful in terms of military destruction that a lesson had been taught to the you know crown heads of Europe. And the lesson was war is not as much of a game anymore. It's no longer, you know, these small private armies that we move around our European chessboard and, oh, I lost to you so you can have this province and then next time I'll beat you and I'll take that province back, you know. Nobody was trying to topple other regimes. It, It was, if anything, gentlemanly warfare, if there's ever been such a thing. It's been called in the history books limited warfare or restricted warfare. There was an Italian historian named Ferraro 
1933, who talked about how, you know, that era of warfare was the kind of warfare where, you know, the leaders of countries could actually have fun going to war. War was something you just sort of did like pheasant hunting, at least in the minds of some of these guys. Um, Ferraro writes, quote, Restricted warfare was one of the loftiest achievements of the 18th century. It belongs to a class of hothouse plants which can only thrive in an aristocratic and qualitative civilization. We are no longer capable of it. It's one of the fine things we have lost as a result of the French Revolution. End quote. The French Revolution was when, you know, warfare got, at least in the minds of the Europeans of this era, you know, really serious. You want a war? Then we're going to go to war. The crown heads of Europe attacked France after France went all revolutionary. And you have to understand how much of a shock that was. Historian Gwen Dyer has a great way of describing it. He says, to understand the shock of the crown heads of Europe when the most royal of European countries, the French, were overthrown by leftist revolutionaries, he says, you have to imagine if Maoists toppled the U.S. government today. Maoists, of course, being a very hardcore communist group. Imagine them toppling today's U.S. government and beginning to govern. He goes, that's how the crown heads of Europe felt about the French Revolution and how destabilizing it was seen. So inevitably, the royalty of Europe, which is almost all of Europe, clashes with this new republic in France and coalesces into an alliance and everybody attacks France. And they do so with their private mercenary armies and they run into the entire French population, a people in arms. Because France started by losing. You have to imagine a state where the entire underpinnings of the state have been broken down, including especially the army. And then all, I mean, Prussia, Russia, Austria, Great Britain, all these powers in Europe attack France at the same time. And you're stuck with, I mean, like a bit of your army left over. The artillery stayed with the people, so the old French artillery was good. But you've got this mishmash of an army with officers who don't have any authority. It's crazy. And France is about to be defeated. And then as only you know, totalitarian type regimes can do, they basically tell the people of France that the war is now everything, our entire focus, the entire society exists only to win this war. The decree of the French National Convention in 1793 said, quote, from this moment until that in which our enemies shall have been driven from the territory of the Republic, all Frenchmen are permanently requisitioned for service in the armies. The young men shall fight. The married men shall forge weapons and transport supplies. The women will make tents and clothes and serve in hospitals. The public buildings shall be turned into barracks. The public squares into munition factories. All firearms of suitable caliber shall be turned over to the troops. The interior will be policed with shotguns and cold steel. All saddle horses shall be seized for the cavalry. All draft horses not employed in cultivation will draw the artillery and supply wagons. End quote. In other words, the entire society was mobilized for the war effort. This was not something that the other countries did. In fact, most of the royal you know, leaders of Europe could think of nothing more scary than arming and training your population. Oftentimes, they used their professional militaries to put down rebellions by their population. The last thing they wanted to do was give them guns and train them how to use it, right? Train them how to be better street fighters. Wasn't going to happen. 
But the French had a different kind of society, one that was supposed to be run by the very, you know, low-born people. Everybody was in this together. And you combine the willingness to throw human life, you know, out there on the battlefield in almost endless numbers. You didn't have to pay these people either. You could just say, I'm sorry, you're out of work right now. You're going to the front and uh, uh, steal some chickens from some farmer on the way. This was crazy. And all of a sudden, the French were able to expend lives on a scale that was unprecedented and to create armies that were enormous. I mean, look at Alexander the Great, probably the greatest conqueror in all world history. Alexander conquers a very large chunk of the known world and a decent-sized chunk of the unknown world at the time with an army that numbered anywhere from 40 to 90,000 men, okay? And he was obviously a genius in the way he did it. But imagine if Alexander could have used a historical Xerox machine to duplicate that world-conquering army so that now he's got two 40 to 90,000-man armies roughly comparable to each other. Now imagine he does it again and then duplicates it again and then again and then again. You do that enough times to where you've got 1.2, 1.3, 1.5 million men, maybe eventually closer to 3 million men. And now you've given Alexander the Great a 20th century army. A 20th century army is many, many armies from the past. The French Revolution is when that really starts. When you start putting so many troops into the field that it doesn't matter that they're practically incompetent, that their lives are wasted, that they're turned into cannon fodder as Napoleon, who will inherit this, you know, people's army, that will conscript every man they want to conscript as long as they need them, will say, troops are born to be killed. And as Napoleon famously said to the Austrian diplomat, Count Metternich, you cannot stop me. I spend 30,000 lives a month. If any of the major powers, except maybe Russia, uh, in Europe at this time, lost 30,000 men in a month, it would be considered quite a blow. Napoleon lost 30,000 men a month as a matter of course. Because he had a new kind of army. He had a people in arms. And in order to beat him, the other countries of Europe had to do the same thing as the German Field Marshal Blücher told the Prussian, you know, government after the Prussians had been defeated by Napoleon, give me a national army. Give me what he has. And when he got it, you know, which the Prussian aristocracy didn't want to do for the same reason that the European leaders everywhere didn't want to do it. They didn't want to put the people in arms. But when they did, they were able to triple the size of Blücher's army. And he took that army and fought Napoleon with it. The creation of a nation in arms was the first step in creating the modern war machine because now all of a sudden life was cheap not only was life cheap but the modern nation state was now deep enough to be able to truly take a punch and this is what sets the modern militaries off and the modern states off from the ones in ancient times in ancient times very few states could take a punch, you know, to use a boxing term. Many of them could dish it out. I mean, you take a state like the Achaemenid Persians, you know, the ones who fought the Spartans at Thermopylae and all that. The Persians could dish out really good blows, but they couldn't take very many good blows. 
Most nations in the past couldn't. That's why if you look at a book, you know, The Greatest Battles in History, if it's beyond, you know, about 150 years ago, sometimes the great battle is the only battle. I mean, wars are won or lost on one big battle because the nation states couldn't take too many punches. They couldn't re-raise armies. The state just couldn't support it. Once France turns the entire nation into the war effort, Nations can take punches better. I mean, in, in the past, I mean, the Mongols and the Chinese could take some punches. The, the Roman Empire could take punches. That's what set those nation states in the past apart from most of their enemies, right? They, they had more staying power. They had modern staying power. The French Revolution teaches all these states to have modern staying power. The only problem with modern staying power is that the killing can go on longer. In boxing, they always feel like an early knockout is more merciful than a long match because in a long match, you take a lot more punishment. Well, in a funny way, if everything could be decided at one big horrific battle, you know, at the start of a war, that is a lot less costly over time than a four or a five-year-long conflict where both sides grind each other down to the nub. The Napoleonic Wars created multiple states in Europe capable of fighting until they were ground down to the nub, which meant a lot more damage and destruction before these wars came to a halt. The modern nation-state provided the support that the militaries that involved entire peoples in arms needed to keep the struggle going, you know, for long periods of time, one half of the equation necessary to create the modern war machines. As military historian Gwen Dyer writes, right after he talks about the human costs of these, you know, long Napoleonic wars, he says, quote, Almost as important is the fact that European society did not break down under the strain. There was hardship, but no starvation, and the warring powers were able to keep at it and keep their people at it, year after year, with no end in sight. The European states had developed the wealth, the organizational techniques, and the methods of motivation needed to fight mass wars with a degree of popular participation that no other civilized society had ever even approached. All that was lacking, he writes, to transform mass warfare into total war was the technology. But the Industrial Revolution was already almost a generation old in 1814, and soon it would begin to fill the last remaining gap. End quote. What was missing to make this new deadly machine that the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution created was the technology to increase the deadliness by exponential amounts. And that was already something that was happening. The 1800s are an era in military history where the killing power of machines skyrockets. And machines have been an important part of battlefields since before there were cities and human societies to field mass armies at all. Think of the bow and arrow. That's a Neolithic weapon. That's a Stone Age machine that made man a more efficient killer, both in hunting but on the battlefield as well. By the time the 1800s roll around, the machine's killing power skyrockets. But because there is no major war involving all the great powers between Napoleon and the First World War, the actual demonstration of how this stuff can be used is lacking. And the military powers of the world try to examine the conflicts that do happen to see if they can learn any lessons about what the next war is likely to be like. There were European observers, for example, at the American Civil War to try to see, you know, what you could learn from that. 
the Crimean War breaks out in the 1850s between Russia and Britain and France. There's a war, obviously, between the United States and Spain that involved Cuba and the Philippines, you know, right around the turn of the century, going into the 1900s. Probably most importantly, there's a war between Japan and Russia in 1905, where some of the use of these, you know, new weapons that when fused together create the modern war machine, where some of that was observable. The one thing that seems to be the key element, as far as European planners can figure it out, though, is something that harkens back to a phrase from a Confederate general in the U.S. Civil War who said that the key to warfare was to get there firstest with the mostest. And the idea now of these mass armies that Europe had created was that you needed to be able to raise them and get them to the battlefield before the other side beat you to it. The timetable for mobilization becomes a force that none of the major European powers seem to be anything but a slave to once the assassin's bullet in Sarajevo cuts down the Austrian Archduke. When the Archduke is killed by Princip, he does the equivalent of pulling a pin on a hand grenade. Imagine trying to hold negotiations to ward off an explosion with a guy who's already pulled the pin on the grenade, right? You have a limited amount of time to convince them of anything. Winston Churchill during his life had famously said that jaw-jaw was better than war-war, meaning negotiations always better than war. But if the person's already pulled the pin on the hand grenade, you have a very short window of opportunity to avoid the inevitable. And that's where Europe finds itself after the Archduke is murdered. Everybody's worried about the same thing, too. There's an old phrase the um, peace movement used to use in the late 1960s, early 1970s, where they would say, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Well, the military planners in Europe at this time period are worried about something a little bit different. What if war breaks out and on the days that hostilities commence, only one side's got their army there? I mean, if it takes you... 30 days to get your reservists in uniform to the mustering point into the battlefield before they're ready to fight. How big of a deal is it if it only takes your opponent 15 days to do the same thing? This puts a huge crunch, you know, time-wise on everybody in this story and constrains the ability to negotiate your way out of this situation. Everybody feels like, okay, the first person that flips the mobilization switch, we all go because nobody wants to fall behind. The Germans have constrained themselves even more time-wise by the way that they have found a solution to their terrible dilemma of how do you fight a two-front war. You know, once you violate Bismarck's dictum of, you know, keep the Russians on your side, and then the Russians and the French ally with each other, and war breaks out, you're going to be fighting the French in the West and the Russians in the East at the same time. And in the intervening decades the fantastic German general staff had figured out a way to not just survive that situation, but to win that war. But it involved exquisite timing, which further constrained the amount of negotiation room you had before the grenade went off. The timing involved taking advantage of the fact that everyone thought the Russians were going to take forever to mobilize. 
The Russians were seen as a giant, somewhat clumsy colossus, less organized than the Germans and the French and people like that. And so by the time the Russians could get their act together and get their monstrous armies in the field ready to fight, Germany already would have defeated France. Their entire plan for action involved throwing almost all their weight against the French immediately and then turning after French forces were defeated and throwing those forces against the now ready-to-fight Russians. But this did two things to the Germans. One, it meant the Russians could have no advanced time mobilizing. You couldn't let them mobilize for three or four days while you waited to negotiate putting the pin back in the grenade. You didn't have that kind of time. You were going to screw up your entire plan for winning the war if you did that. The other thing that it meant is that if you went to war with Russia, you had to attack France. You had to assume that the French would come in at some time, and the only thing you had a plan to deal with was to attack the French first. So if you go into war with Russia, you get to attack France as part of the bargain. But it was even more of a concern than that. It involved attacking countries besides France, countries you had no disagreement with at all, neutral countries that just happened to be in the way. The Germans had come up with a plan to deal with their encirclement problem, but it involved launching essentially a world war in their own defense. The other thing that Princip did was provide an opportunity for a lot of these leaders who thought war was coming anyway to decide that now was better than later. And this is another interesting side of the conflict, but if you're part of these many military staffs that are absolutely sure war is coming, and you know you can read accounts from every major military of the time period where numbers of their military planners thought war was inevitable. The question is, is if it's going to be inevitable, is it better to fight it now than later? The Germans were under the impression that the Russians were on their way to superpower status, which if you look at what happened in the 20th century is exactly how it turned out. The Germans felt that by 1917, that was going to be a reality. The Russians were completing major military reforms, major transportation reforms. They were taking advantage of huge French bank loans to do this stuff. The Germans figured if war comes in three years, we're going to be in a much worse situation than we are now. So if it's here, we might as well do it now. We have an advantage now we won't have later. And the French felt similarly about the Germans as the Germans felt about the Russians. They were looking at the German birth rate and just going, we're going to be swamped. They were looking at the growth in industry. I mean, the Germans were on a tear. So if war came in five or six or seven years, the French are just going to be worse off. So they figured the same thing. If war's going to come, let it come now. And amidst these interesting conflicts of interest and worries about timing and all this stuff, the world sees where it's heading and tries to pull back from the brink. But instead of having, you know, the greatest statesman Europe can produce during this time period, some of these countries are saddled with people who are like millstones around the neck of peace. People like Kaiser Wilhelm II the emperor of Germany. And leadership is such an interesting side of this conflict because I firmly believe had you had a guy of Otto von Bismarck's caliber in a position of authority in Germany when the First World War is you know, on the verge of happening, that they could put the pin back in the grenade 
you know, that Gavrilo Princep metaphorically pulled in Sarajevo. I think it could have been done, and all it would have required would have been some real, you know, diplomatic quality. Brilliance would have been great, but I don't even think you needed that. Just some some high-quality workmanship, which the Germans had produced time and again. The problem was, in this time period, they are stuck with a ruler who could not have gotten the job if merit had been one of the requirements, you know, of having it handed to you. Kaiser Wilhelm II was not a great leader. He represents the, you know, most wonderful example you can easily think of, of what a roll of the dice hereditary monarchy is, and how sometimes you get a great role and you end up with a gifted ruler, and then it almost seems wonderful that they've got so much power in their hands, right? Because if someone really knows what to do with it and does good things with it, you kind of say to yourself, well, I'm glad they had the power to do those good things. But that's a bit of a roll of the dice, isn't it? As often as you get one of those people, you get somebody who's evil or cruel or insane. Some people throughout history have rolled very badly on the dice far too many times, but it creates good hardcore history work, you know, for us. I mean, the ancient Elamites used to roll whatever the number is that comes up that means you get yet another insane ruler in your dynasties. Made for fun reading, but I wouldn't have wanted to live under it. In Germany, this current leader, this current Kaiser, Kaiser, just like Tsar in Russia, where they have an autocratic king guy too, both of those stem from the word Caesar, which right there in the 20th century sounds anachronistic, doesn't it? You know, it's part of this old world that had existed forever. I mean, king and emperor doesn't sound anachronistic at any time in history before 1914, going back to like Mesopotamia, does it? just sounds weird in the 20th century. Shows you how old this world is that is marching into the 20th century. Three of the major powers in this conflict are ruled by emperors, kings, or czars. Now, they don't have total power. Well, the czar almost does, really. Uh, the Kaisers had his chipped away over a couple generations. He has to share some power with the German legislature, which has political parties, and they handle budgets and taxation. But the Kaiser still has a ton of power over war and foreign policy and political appointments and all that. And he's just this below-average guy. The funny part about the Kaiser is that the best thing that ever happened to his reputation was Adolf Hitler. Because when you look at the propaganda and you read the stuff written about the Kaiser before Hitler comes along... And the Kaiser is treated as this evil character, malevolent. You know, this militaristic, want to take over the world, blood falling off of the bayonet you see in the political cartoons. And now the attitude that people have towards him is that he's almost silly. Or that he's full of, you know, he's just racked with inferiority complexes. He's almost to be pitied. He's a little mentally dull. But, but there isn't that malevolent evil sort of thing. And I think part of the reason why is when you have Hitler to compare someone to, all of a sudden you see that the Kaiser was just sort of a, you know, marginally bad role on the monarchy dice. For what it's worth, he was tied into all the other great monarchies in Europe. One of the funny twists in the story and it actually provides, you know, something of importance because at, in Europe at this time, the royal families had relatives of other royal families in Europe in their families. And these families still communicated with each other, which provides like a diplomatic back channel where these rulers can actually, you know, sidestep traditional diplomacy and just write the family member that rules the other country. For example, Queen Victoria, who may be the most famous queen in British history, maybe the most important, ruled forever. 
uh, presided over Britain during the height of Britain's power, when she's controlling most of the world and the sun proverbially never set on the British Empire, Queen Victoria's grandchildren are in, I mean, well, Kaiser Wilhelm's one of them. He's Queen Victoria's grandchild. He's the first cousin of the King of England, King George, right? Not just that, but the Tsar of Russia is married to another of Queen Victoria's grandchildren. So the Tsar is her son-in-law. It's also Wilhelm's cousin. And when, you know, he gets upset or he wants to talk to the Russians about something, he will often, you know, sit down and pen a quick note to Cousin Nicky. That would be Tsar Nicholas II. Now, the Tsar in Russia is another average to low average role on the monarchy dice. It's perhaps telling, and some historians have made it out to be, that you end up with such mediocre leadership in such powerful countries during this time period. It might account for why, you know, these international incidents, which could have led to war previously, didn't, but now are, because the leadership sucks. I mean, in terms of what you could expect if these people were merit-based leaders. You know, you can say what you want about a Stalin or a Hitler or even a Mussolini who's been portrayed again in the West like some sort of clown. But all of those people were formidable individuals who rose through the ranks at some level. I mean, same thing with American politicians. I mean, a guy like Franklin Roosevelt, you can say what you want about him, but that's a formidable human being with qualities that allowed them to sort of rise to the top. That requires a merit-based something. Being born into the Hohenzollern family as the oldest son doesn't require anything. That's the luck of the draw. If the job of Kaiser had been merit-based, Kaiser Wilhelm II wouldn't have gotten anywhere near it. And yet he's the guy most responsible for putting the pin back in the grenade if war is going to be avoided here. And, you know, he famously said after he sacked Bismarck and then sacked another guy, he said, I'm, I am my own chancellor, meaning I'm, I'm going to run all this myself. But what do you do when not only are they subpar in intelligence and brilliance and all that, but because they're subpar in it, they can't see that they're subpar in it. They don't even take advice well. I mean, at one point in the story, the Kaiser will ask one of his military leaders to do something that is ridiculous, stupid, lose the war, stupid. And the military leader will say, it cannot be done. And the Kaiser will embarrass him and say something to the effect of, your uncle, who was also a field marshal, would have given me a different answer. In other words, he would have done what I wanted him to do, even if it was stupid. The Kaiser, just to show you how it is, too, so you understand royalty and you remember in your head, you go, oh, yeah, that's what royalty is like. This same military leader I just quoted, a guy named von Moltke, will have to change the way that the German war game system works before the First World War. And he will have to put his foot down and take a career-risking move and tell the Kaiser that no longer can they keep up with the tradition that whatever side the Kaiser is commanding in the German national war games has to win. Think about that for a second. Before Field Marshal von Moltke puts his foot down... Whatever side the Kaiser is commanding in these war games, these national maneuvers of national security importance, whatever side the Kaiser's commanding wins. Automatically. I mean, come on, folks, that's goofy. And the Kaiser's a little goofy. He's got this one arm that was damaged during his birth, which was withered and had no strength. He couldn't cut his own food, for example, which is so embarrassing to a guy who's already got an inferiority complex. He goes to England to spend time with his cousins, and they don't really care for him too much. The British royal family is kind of turned off by William, and all William wants is kind of their love and approval and to be like them. And what's funny is in this sort of weird, um, almost like tragic playwright kind of way, 
the Kaiser sort of embodies the inferiority complex that his country has at this time, too. They're a new country on the stage, and they think they're being treated like trash. They're mad. They're, they're chauvinistic. That's how the British and the French and those people see them as just these upstart, you know, push their weight around kind of people. But as many historians have pointed out, there's no nation in the world that's up and coming that doesn't start to act like it. And when they do, the nations that already have it all don't like it. I mean, how do how does the United States kind of feel about China today sort of elbowing its way into the, you know, power structure here? I mean, we all understand they deserve it. You look at their economics, you look at all the signs, they, they're, they're up and coming. But nobody necessarily feels like that person pushing their way in to get their own space is anything other than a bit of an upstart. During this time period, the United States plays a similar role. Just sort of elbowing their way into world power, whether the people that are already there like it or not. Make some room, here we come. That's how the German Empire was. There was a feeling of inferiority, and Kaiser Wilhelm held that sort of attitude in spades. But if you read the stuff at the Times, he's portrayed as this militarist, and that is the, the term that is most often used for this German Empire that will be blamed for everything that's happening here, okay? Militarism. The entire latter part of the 1800s, people focused on militarism and the building of these amazingly technologically deadly armaments and the race for power. I mean, it just seemed like the world was arming itself to the teeth and it was just going to explode. And it was these militarists who were responsible. And people who look at Nazi Germany and who are, um, I know people who are enthralled by the Wehrmacht and the precision marching and the uniforms and this whole sort of militaristic fascist attitude that the Nazis portrayed. And I always try to tell them that the Nazis didn't invent this, that the Nazis were revitalizing regular German martial attitudes. That's the nice thing. It's militarism if you don't like it. It's martial if you do like it. Um, that's what Hitler and his cabal were doing, is bringing back traditional Prussian martial practices. That goose-stepping, robotic, unbelievably efficient precision drilling and all that, those are Prussian qualities that go back to Frederick the Great. And it freaked out. A lot of, a lot of the countries in Europe looked at this and it just they looked dangerous. They looked mean. They looked chauvinistic. They looked like they wanted to take over your country. And then they were building this giant navy now all of a sudden out of nowhere, challenging Britain because the Kaiser had read that same book that Theodore Roosevelt read, did anybody do more damage than Alfred Thayer Mahan when he decides to write a book on naval history? Because the Kaiser, like Roosevelt, read it, was enthralled with it, made all his, you know, admirals read it, and then decided he was going to build this fleet to compete with Britain so that they, you know, wouldn't take him for granted. Fascinating character. A perfect example, though, of what can happen with the role of the monarchy dice. Now, of course, all the governments in Europe that matter are not all monarchies and autocratic governments. There are the famous governments of France and Britain, for example. France is a republic again by this time, having tried out royalty again after Napoleon decided that they liked the republic idea better and they're a republic. And Britain might as well be by this time period. They still have the king and the royalty and all that, but they don't have any power anymore. They're, they were during this time period the way the royal family is now maybe more gravitas and maybe more able to shift public opinion one way or the other than the more cynical generation today looks at the current royal family. But at the time, that's about the extent of their political authority. Parliament, the legislature of Britain, has the power then like they have the power now. But that creates a dynamic where the French and the British have to worry about things that you know, the countries on the other side of the ledger or Russia don't have to worry about. They have to worry about the political situation. They have to worry about their political opponents, 
you know, using the war situation as a, you know, political issue. In Great Britain, there's quite a bit of division over this whole thing. And during this time period between when the Archduke is assassinated, which happens on June 28th, 1914, and when the Austro-Hungarian government issues that famous ultimatum, the list of demands to Serbia, which happens on July 23rd, there's a big dead zone in there. Now, it's not really a dead zone. If you were reading the morning papers every morning in that period, there'd be war scares and comments here, and there'd be something new every day to keep you focused on the crisis. But historically speaking, not much happens. What was going on was behind the scenes. A ton of diplomacy. And one of the main avenues of diplomacy were the French trying to get the British, you know, into some sort of hard agreement for what they're going to do if this war breaks out in five minutes. Because they don't have a hard agreement with the British. They sort of have a soft agreement. Instead of a signed-on-the-dotted-line contract, they have a handshake deal, and they're starting to get a little bit worried about the handshake deal. And they're getting worried that even if the government in charge in London right now will come through on the handshake deal, who's to say they're going to be able to keep political power? Their opponents could use this war issue, you know, to topple the government, take control of the government, and then say to France, we only have a handshake deal, I'm sorry, the new government will not... Uh, comply with the handshake deal. Sorry, we're not getting involved in this war. We're neutral. We have this splendid isolation. And the Navy will protect us. Because remember, folks, look at a map of Great Britain. They have a giant moat around their country and the greatest Navy in the world to protect it. They have the option of staying out of this thing if they want to. The French don't have that luxury. They're on the invasion list. They're on the dinner menu for Imperial Germany. And they're looking for people to provide some help. They've got the Russians, but the Russians are a long way away. But not being on the dinner menu for the Imperial German military meant that the British situation was fundamentally different. They couldn't see a real positive outcome for them if they get involved in this whole affair. I mean, there are things the French can gain. They've got a couple of lost territories they lost to Germany in the War of 1870-1871. They'd like to get those back. In a best-case scenario... You know, if this conflict breaks out, they will get them back. The British don't have anything that wonderfully positive to look forward to. Yes, they might alleviate the threat of this German fleet. But by 1912, it was already felt that the British had proven that the Germans could not compete with them in the building of ships. Not if they wanted to have a great land army at the same time. And so that's kind of out of the way by this point. So no big gain there. And maybe you protect France from falling, because if France falls, you get the situation you had in the Second World War in 1940, where all of a sudden you have the Germans staring across the you know, English Channel from you, and then all of a sudden that moat doesn't look that wide, does it? But that's not a lot of positive stuff to go into the first global conflict in a hundred years for. To the British, this looks like a massive disruption of their extremely profitable business ventures. They've been snapping up books like The Great Illusion, written by Norman Angle, where every historian points out how influential this book was, where Angle is trying to explain to the people in that time period that this war that continually gets threatened, like the Russian roulette trigger being pulled, is never going to happen. It can't happen. The world has become too interdependent in that time period. There's too much globalization. This is the early period where all that starts, where you have the telegraph providing instant communication and the railroads and the shipping lines and trade had never been higher, wealth had never been grander, and Europe was at the height of its you know, financial power and Britain was at the height of everybody's financial power. Why would you mess with that economic situation? Guys like Angle were saying that what had happened is it was so profitable to simply do business as usual 
that there was nothing worth going to war over. What Engel was saying is that anything you would gain by launching a war would be dwarfed by what you would lose by destroying the system that was allowing everyone to make so much money. There's an old line um, that when goods don't cross borders, armies will. Well, this is the opposite situation. Their goods are crossing borders like crazy. So guys like Engel tell you that, you know, because of that formula, and they believe in that formula, you can't have a war. And what the British are starting to find out, you know, as this dead zone period from the end of the Archduke's assassination to the ultimatum by Serbia, what the British are starting to find out is that Engel is at least partially wrong. He may be right that you will destroy a whole system that's making everybody rich. He seems to be wrong in thinking that the powers that be will avoid a war because of that. And the British government is having a hard time selling their people on the idea that this is good for Britain. On July 23rd, finally, the long-awaited response from the Austro-Hungarian government to the killing of their heir to the throne. They send an ultimatum to the government of Serbia. The ultimatum is one of those documents you can look at throughout history that is obviously designed to be rejected. The demands would eviscerate Serbian sovereignty. No sovereign state could agree to this. And they're only given 48 hours to respond to all these different points, the rejection of any one of which means war. But the day before the 48-hour deadline runs out, the Serb government sends a message to the Tsar of Russia asking for help. And they wrote, quote, We cannot defend ourselves. Therefore, we pray your majesty to send help as soon as possible. Your majesty has given many proofs of your previous goodwill, and we confidently hope that this appeal will find an echo in your generous Slav heart. End quote. The Serbs send a response back to the Austro-Hungarians. It's not good enough. The Austro-Hungarians declare war on July 28th, exactly one month after the assassination, and they're shelling Belgrade in like five minutes. The Russians declare mobilization in response to this. This is the moment when the first outside power turns on their doomsday device. You see, when the Austro-Hungarians and the Serbians mobilize, it doesn't freak anyone else out because they're going to fight a little war against each other and they have to mobilize to do that. It's when the first outside power tied to these alliance systems flicks on their doomsday device that everyone else is going to feel the pressure to do the same thing. Germany the most pressure because they're the ones with the very short window of opportunity. I think the designer of the military plans Count Schlieffen had figured out it was about 900, 950 hours that they had to smash the potential of France. She didn't have to be mopped up, but she had to be smashed within 950 or so hours before the Russians would start to come in from the east with their armies now mobilized. If you screwed that up, they could be in Berlin having coffee and cigarettes and poking the Kaiser with a stick in a cage by the time, you know, the Germans figured out what was going on. So the minute the Russians mobilize, you have this crisis because the Russians have the flexibility, if they want to, of just sending those people home in a month. Mobilization doesn't mean war to them, but it does to the Germans because they've got to start their plans. And every day they don't, that 950 or so hour window is shrinking. This is the point in the story where the military plans begin to take over the political process in a way that makes it impossible for the politicians and the diplomats to do what they need to do to potentially stop this conflict. They need time. 
They need time. On the 26th of July, the government of Britain calls a peace conferences for the major powers so they could hash this out, talk it out. Nobody's got the time. Once the Russians hit the mobilization switch, the Germans are under pressure. They tell the Russians to stop. The Russians say, we're only doing this against Austria-Hungary. This isn't meant, you know, against you. Doesn't matter. The Germans have a problem now. And they begin going to everyone else and saying, are you in? Are you in? They go to the French and they say to the French, are you in this conflict that's about to come out? Because we're going to go to war with the Russians if they don't demobilize. What are you going to do? The French said, we're going to act in accordance with our interest. And the Germans said, well, listen, if you want to stay out of this war, all you have to do is hand us the keys to all your forts on our fortified border until the war in the East is over. That's as a pledge of your good behavior and we'll consider you out of this war. That is as impossible for the French government to do as the demands on Serbia were for the Serbians to do. French can't do that. That's a, you know, hand over your national security keys to your most antagonistic historic enemy. I don't think so. And the Germans must have known that. They knew they couldn't keep France out of this conflict, which is why they had these, you know, fantastic military plans to defeat two powers. The country they were really hoping to keep out of the conflict was Great Britain. And they kept negotiating with Britain saying, you know, you don't have any deal here. We're cousins. We're both Anglo-Saxons. We're the same race. You know, the French are your historic enemies. Are you really going to work with them? On the 30th of July, the British Prime Minister wrote in his diary, quote, the European situation is at least one degree worse than it was yesterday, and it has not been improved by a rather shameless attempt on the part of Germany to buy our neutrality during the war by promises that she will not annex French territory, except colonies, or Holland or Belgium. There is something very crude, he writes, and childlike about German diplomacy. Meanwhile, the French are beginning to press in the opposite sense, as the Russians have been doing for some time. The city, he means London, which is in a terrible state of depression and paralysis, is for the time being all against English intervention. I think the prospect very black today. End quote. But something will happen that will change the mood in Britain. Something that will help to create a good guy, bad guy narrative in this war. You know, as I told you earlier, one of the key issues, because this war is so important to the rest of the 20th century and 21st century history, is whose fault it all is. And the British are very concerned during this time period that they be, if they intervene, intervening on the right side. Who's the bad guy? It's going to depend on what happens. That's, again, where the German war plans put them in a situation where for the war plan to succeed, you have to create strategic problems that are going to cost you the war. The biggest thing the Germans need to do here is keep the British out of this war. But the war plans involve a requirement that will bring the British into the war. The Germans can't attack the French along their mutual border. That border is full of forts. It's the most, one of the most fortified borders throughout world history ever since Roman times. It's the same area, about 120-mile front, that will become the Maginot Line after this war and before the Second World War. During this time period, there are fantastically technologically sophisticated forts all through this 120-mile border between Germany and France with interlocking fields of fire and large garrisons. It's not that the Germans can't defeat that. They did in 1870-1871. That was the route of invasion back then. The problem is the Germans can't defeat them within that 950 or so hour window. By the time the Germans smash their way through those forts, the Russians are in Berlin and Silesia and everywhere else, right? 
So there's only one thing the Germans can see their way to doing as part of this plan to win the two-front war, and that's to smash into France in the part of France that's undefended. But the reason the part of France that's undefended or less defended than this fortified border is less defended is because it isn't on the border with Germany. It's on the border with a bunch of neutral states. These are going to have to be the highways the German army uses to get from Germany to France. The only problem is, is that those highways neutrality is guaranteed by the British government and has been for 75 years. What is about to happen as a result of the stipulations of those German war plans is potentially the greatest mistake ever made. I mean, I'd put it on my top 10 list somewhere, greatest mistakes ever made. And if you're a German, I have to believe that I, I have a hard time figuring out what is a greater mistake for the entire history of your nation as a unified, you know, country since 1871. I have a hard time finding something you could label as a greater mistake than this one, because so many of the other candidates you might put as your greatest mistake only happened because of this mistake before it. The invasion of Belgium is a disaster for Germany on so many fronts. And that's what we're talking about here. Originally, you know, way back in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, Holland had also been on the list of countries to be used as a highway for the German army. But since that time and as the war plans were refined, it was just narrowed down to just Belgium. And the Germans were sort of naively hoping that the Belgians would just step aside, like line their army up on both sides of the street and watch the Germans march through. Um... The British and the Prussians, you know, who are sort of the forefathers of these Germans, were two of the signatories to something called the Treaty of London in 1839 that pledged to defend Belgium's neutrality in a wonderfully tragic, ironic sort of connection, too, by the way. The role Belgium is going to play leading to the First World War is very similar to the role Poland played leading up to the Second. In both cases, those countries were the reason Britain got dragged into the conflict. Before the Second World War, Britain had you know, tried to stop Hitler's seemingly endless ambition by putting a roadblock in his way and guaranteeing the independence of Poland. Hitler ignored that guarantee, went into Poland, and Britain's in the war. In the First World War, the same thing is happening with Belgium. The German planners can see no way to win this war without violating Belgium's neutrality, as we said. This is what makes it the greatest mistake, though, potentially in all German history, because violating Belgium ends up taking a Britain that one historian says as recently as two days before they declare war on Germany is leaning toward neutrality. That's amazing to think about. Two days before they enter the war, the government is leaning toward neutrality. What changed that? The invasion of Belgium. The invasion of Belgium does two terrible things if you're looking at this from Germany's point of view. The first thing is it changes British political and public opinion almost overnight, on a dime. As the British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith put it, he, of course, wants to get more involved in this looming war because of the handshake deal with France. He said that the ultimatum the Germans give to the Belgians simplify matters. All of a sudden, the people who are trying to convince the rest of Britain that they have a dog in this continental war looming up have some real ammunition. The first thing is a signed treaty with the Belgians. That's not a handshake deal. That's in ink, and it's longstanding, as is the national security concern that Britain has had for a very long time of keeping the channel ports in Belgium out of the hands of some dangerous hostile power. Now, throughout most of Britain's history, that dangerous hostile power was France but they're calling the Kaiser the new Napoleon, and if he goes into Belgium, he's going to have those channel ports. So what had been 
a more sort of highbrow uh, argument that didn't really, you know, appeal to the gut is changing because of Belgium. The most important appeal to the gut, though, that Belgium has is the propaganda slash PR side of this whole thing. Belgium is what destroys Germany's reputation in terms of global public opinion. I mean, there had always been people who called Germany this evil, malevolent, militaristic country and what have you. But on the world stage, as soon as the Germans invade Belgium, they participate in the most aggressive act so far by any of the major powers in this conflict. Austro-Hungarian assaults against Serbia maybe before this was the most egregious, but that was seen as having some sort of you know, connection to events. I mean, the Serbian government had maybe been involved in this assassination. There was something to do with one another. Belgium was an innocent bystander. You know, it's like a shooting war breaks out between a couple of, of gangsters on the street, and the first thing one of the gangsters does is turn to the side and kills an innocent bystander because they're standing in their way. That's a little like what this is portrayed as by, you know, the Allied propaganda services, which make the most use of this Belgium thing you can imagine, so much so that it incensed people like Adolf Hitler, who were right later in Mein Kampf, that nowhere else did the Germans, you know, fall so far behind the British and the French and later the Americans than they did in the, in the realm of propaganda. Hitler says the huge mistake of Germany and Austria-Hungary's propaganda was to portray the enemy as comical. And he said that the British and the French and the Americans understand that the enemy needs to be seen as vile and dangerous and bloodthirsty and as bad, not comical. Because he said the problem with portraying them as comical is you run up against them and they're tough. And that seems to shatter all the propaganda. It's better to say they're these evil, you know, the nine riders of Mordor are approaching, he says. And then, you know, you really get your back into a cause like that. And that's how the Allies, which is what Britain, France, and many other countries, the United States later included, will be called in this war. They're initially called the Triple Entente. The other side, the um, alliance with Germany, Austria, Hungary, later Turkey, and some other countries will be called the Central Powers. And so it's the Triple Entente against the Central Powers or the Allies against the Central Powers. And the Central Powers will be portrayed, just as Hitler said, as these rapers and pillagers and looters. And it will be in Belgium that the Germans will provide their opponents with the raw materials to not have to exaggerate too much at all to portray them as the modern-day version of the Huns. Now, on August 1st, 1914, this small war between the Austro-Hungarians and the Serbs gets bigger because that's when the German ultimatum given to the Russians telling them to stop their mobilization or else runs out. Historian David Stevenson says that this is a clear sign that the Russians know what's coming and they're okay with it. They know that if they don't stand down, they'll have war with Germany and they don't stand down. So he says one way or another, you have to infer that the Russians were ready for this and okay with it. So on August 1st, the Germans declare war on the Russians. That day, Italy says they're out. They had a nominal alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary, but they choose to use an out clause, which may or may not be valid, depending on who you're talking to, saying that this appears to be an aggressive war and their alliance only covers defensive war. So they're out. They declare that they're neutral in this new conflict that's just starting. The next day, in the West, 
Germany invades the neutral country of Luxembourg, the tiny little neutral country of Luxembourg, and at the same time issues this ultimatum to the Belgians saying, listen, we just need to use your country to get to France. Uh, We mean you no harm. Uh, Just let us march through. If we break anything, we'll pay for it later. And we don't have any designs on your country long term. In response to this, the Belgians have a heroic moment where the king of Belgium, you know, and, and the major officials all get together and basically all agree that they're not going to stand down. The attitude they seem to have is we're screwed either way. We might as well go out of this gloriously. And they decide to mobilize their tiny little army and fight. And at the same time, issue the calls to the other guarantors of their neutrality saying, um, you know, and they they waited until the moment the Germans, by the way, stepped in. Everybody's worried that somebody's going to pull a fast one and try to like the the French are worried the Germans are going to try to fake them into going into Belgium first because they think the Germans are coming in. And then the Germans can say we weren't the first people to violate Belgium. Everybody wants to stay on the good side in terms of war responsibility. The French are so worried about falling into a trap like that. They pull the unprecedented move of all time and on the eve of war, pull their military forces six miles back from the border. Remember, that's not just forward positioning. Those are troops who picked the spots that they were in because they're important strategic spots, important passes and river crossings and other things that have been built up with fortifications for years. And the French government is so freaked out about possibly being blamed for starting this and the Germans not being blamed for starting this that they pull their forces back. The French generals are not pleased about this, but the move is intended to also make sure that the British people and the peace faction in Britain have no excuse to say, well, the French violated Belgian neutrality first, or shots were fired by the French first. So the Germans are positioned into this thing where they have a time limit on this deal. They can't sit around and wait around. Belgium has to be violated for the plan to work. They can't get the French or the British to violate Belgium first. They tell the Belgians, you know, to let them through. The Belgians say no. And on August 3rd, Germany declares war on France and Belgium. Now think about that, folks. A week ago, Europe was peaceful. Now it's on the slide to general war. And within another week, the entire continent's going to be flaming out at each other. I mean, that's crazy to go from total peace to total war in less than two weeks. H.G. Wells, writing a year or two after the conflict ends, so he's right in the middle of the moment. He even says you can't quite, you know, you can't write about it now without the passions and the feelings, you know, totally screwing up your impression of things. But he does talk about how weird the mood was because all this was happening so fast. And he was talking about the British public because that's where he lived. And how there was almost this disconnect between the fact that the entire world has changed, but it's happening so fast we haven't changed with it yet. And he writes, quote, All Europe still remembers the strange atmosphere of those eventful sunny August days, the end of the armed peace. For nearly half a century, the Western world had been tranquil and it seemed safe. Only a few middle-aged and aging people in France had had any practical experience of warfare, The newspapers spoke of a world catastrophe, but that conveyed very little meaning to those for whom the world had always seemed secure, who were indeed almost incapable of thinking of it as anything otherwise than secure. In Britain particularly, for some weeks, the peacetime routine continued in a slightly dazed fashion. It was like a man still walking about the world, unaware that he has contracted a fatal disease, which will alter every routine and habit in his life. 
People went on with their summer holidays. Shops reassured their customers with the announcement, business as usual. There was much talk and excitement when the newspapers came, but it was the talk and excitement of spectators who have no vivid sense of participation in the catastrophe that was presently to involve them all. End quote. It's easy to understand, too, why the British public really weren't ready for this. In fact, None of the British were really ready for this. They hadn't been mentally prepped for the idea that this was coming. For all sorts of political reasons, the British government couldn't declare itself outright and sort of draw a line in the sand and tell the Germans, listen, if you invade Belgium, it's on. No ifs, ands, or buts. The British prime minister didn't have that power. For all he knew, the peace faction in his government would topple his government if a statement like that were made. And both the French and the Germans for a very long time before this conflict breaks out, but especially in the fevered, you know, last month, are trying to get some sort of word from Great Britain what the policy is. What are you going to do? At the last minute, the French are sure the British are going to abandon them. The French foreign minister will sit down in disgust at one point and say they're going to desert us. And when someone in the British media asked him what he's doing, he says, I'm going to wait to see if Britain still has any honor. The British are waiting for something to happen in Belgium, and so are the Belgians. They don't want to do anything until their actual neutrality is violated, so they wait until the Germans arrive. When the advanced cavalry patrols, and actually some guys on bicycles, believe it or not, pedal into Belgium and give notices to the locals that we're sorry that we have to do this, and uh, everything will be fine, just don't cause any trouble, don't blow up any bridges, don't uh, sabotage any railways, don't... Uh, destroy any tunnels, anything we might need to get from here to there, leave all that in place, or those will be considered hostile acts. As soon as it becomes apparent that Germans are on Belgian soil, the king of Belgium basically orders that all those things be done. And then he contacts the other guarantors of Belgian neutrality and says, the Germans are here, we need your help. That's when the British draw up the official sort of ultimatum, which People have criticized them for. I mean, they say if you'd only given that ultimatum before the Germans had gone into Belgium, they might have had more options. Once they're in Belgium, for them to get out of Belgium because the British told them to was really like a tail between their legs kind of situation. And this has happened in history many times uh, in other situations where people have said if you had just said what you were going to do before the enemy did what they did, might have been a different outcome. In this case, once the Germans are in Belgium, the British ambassador to Germany, a guy named Sir Edward Goshen, delivers the British ultimatum to Germany. And he delivers it into the hands of the German minister, a guy named Gottlieb von Jägau, and the German chancellor, a guy named Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg. And Goshen knew that this was a historic meeting. And he wrote down what happened, and he said the Germans, when they received this ultimatum from him, freaked out. He wrote that the meeting was fraught with menace, quote, I found the Chancellor very agitated. His Excellency at once began a harangue, which lasted for about 20 minutes. He said that the step taken by the British government was terrible to a degree, just for a word, neutrality, a word which in wartime had so often been disregarded. Just for a scrap of paper, Great Britain was going to make war on a kindred nation who desired nothing better than to be friends with her. All his efforts in that direction had been rendered useless by this last terrible step, and the policy, to which, as I knew, he had devoted himself since his accession to office, had tumbled down like a house of cards. What we had done was unthinkable, you know, in the minds of the Germans. It was like striking a man from behind while he was fighting for his life against two assailants. 
He held Great Britain responsible for all the terrible events that might happen. I protested strongly against that statement, and said that in the same way that he and Herr von Jäger wished me to understand that for strategical reasons it was a matter of life and death to Germany to advance through Belgium and violate the latter's neutrality, so I would wish him to understand that it was, so to speak, a matter of life and death for the honor of Great Britain, that she should keep her solemn engagements to do her utmost to defend Belgium's neutrality if attacked. That solemn compact simply had to be kept, or what confidence could anyone have in engagements given by Great Britain in the future? The Chancellor said, But at what price will that compact have been kept? Has the British government thought of that? End quote. And this is an interesting key point, because I've often wondered if you could take the principals who were the decision makers in this you know, conflict into the future and show them some history books, and show them what had happened. Even the winners, do you think they would have found a way to avert, you know, what ended up happening? Because it was more horrible than any of them envisioned. The German field marshal in charge of the military affairs at this time, von Moltke, famously said that this was the struggle that would decide the course of history for the next hundred years. And he was absolutely right, maybe more. But had he known that this would mean that Germany would be on the losing end of two world wars in the 20th century. What do you think he would have done? I mean, look at the situation now and imagine Germany without having lost those two world wars and how different they might be today. There are German historians who consider this role of the iron dice, as going to war here is often referred to, as one of the great irresponsible gambles in all German history. And maybe the key element in the whole affair was Britain's decision to involve itself in the conflict. Because one can make a very good case that if Britain stands aside, Germany wins this war that's about to start. Instead, they have perhaps the greatest overall superpower in the early 20th century world lining up on the other side. And... To be truthful, the Germans weren't really afraid of the British army. I mean, that's a small colonial force that by German standards is relatively insignificant, or so they think. I mean, Bismarck had famously said when an advisor had warned him that if you go to war with Britain, they could use that wonderful naval power to land their entire army on our coastline. And Bismarck famously said, if they do that, I shall have them arrested meaning he'd just send the police force out to corral the British army. That's how worried they were about this tiny little force that their army dwarfed. But they were keenly aware that Britain had the greatest navy by far in the world. They were the greatest financial power in the world. They controlled a huge chunk of the world. Britain and France together owned about 70% of the world at this time period when you talk about all their colonies and everything else. And that's all stuff that they can draw on to fight the war. What's more, that wonderful navy of Great Britain's can shut down German shipping, you know, in a moment, at a stroke of a pen. Britain's foreign secretary, Sir Edward Grey, on August 3rd, 1914, when tensions have reached a knife-edge, fever-pitched moment, will look out the window and see the lamplighters of London lighting the lamps for the evening, as was customary at the time. And he turned to someone else at the window and famously said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. The Germans are given the famous ultimatum, and it's set to expire at midnight 
on August 4th, German time, which is 11 p.m. British time. Lloyd George, one of the ministers, says that they were sitting around a table just before, you know, the stroke of 11, watching the clock tick away. And he said that as Big Ben's chimes start chiming for the 11 o'clock hour, signifying that the deadline is about to expire, he says every ring of the bell sounded like doom, doom, doom. And then when it expires, Britain declares war on Germany. And it's worth asking at this point what the people who had just, you know, entered upon this course of action thought was going to happen. I mean, when Lloyd George hears the chimes of Big Ben sounding and thinks they sound like doom. What does Lloyd George mean when he says doom? I mean, this is a conflict of the sort that Europe had not had for a hundred years, and a lot had changed in a hundred years. This is like a jump off of a cliff in the dark for Europe, and no one knows how long the drop is going to be. And they've been exposed to a lot of thinking out there by guys like Norman Engel, we mentioned earlier, who are saying no one's going to jump. Jumping would be suicidal. Everybody die. The golden goose would be killed. Globalization would be destroyed. No one will do it. And now they had just done it. What did people think that meant? Well, as we said earlier, the First World War has so much written about it that you can cherry pick from this or that source and create any sort of impression you want. What it really looks like, though, if you sum up, you know, I've read a bunch of stuff on this, and, and to me what it looks like is that there was a small view amongst some people that understood the reality, and they turn out to be the Cassandras in this story, the, the, the ones who actually prophesize accurately what's going to happen. Most of these people didn't have a clue. I think Lloyd George, when he hears Big Ben sounding doom, is worried about Britain's financial sector. And he had every reason to be, by the way, because a few days before, when Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, the markets around the world, you know, go crazy. And in London, the financial capital of the world, Lloyd George is hearing from all the bankers and all the investors and all these people that this is a, a crisis. It will destroy Britain fiscally, which sounds like the worst thing in the world, until you fast forward the time machine four years and see what's really going to happen, where you would have paid good money to only have the financial system collapse. Here's the thing, though. There were people who turned out to be right about how momentous this leap off this cliff and how long the drop was going to be, who turned out to be right and were kind of hoping for it. I mean, take, for example, the guy who, along with Karl Marx, helped create modern communism, Friedrich Engels, who in 1887 wrote about this coming conflict and how terrible it was going to be. And, of course, you know, in his mind, hoping for an overthrow of all the existing regimes to be replaced by communism— that was sort of the silver lining in this coming Armageddon. Engels wrote, quote, I see a world war of never-before-seen extension and intensity. If the system of mutual outbidding in armament, carried to the extreme, finally bears its natural fruits, eight to ten million soldiers will slaughter each other and strip Europe bare as no swarm of locusts has ever done before. The devastations of the Thirty Years' War condensed into three or four years and spread all over the continent. Famine, epidemics, general barbarization of armies and masses provoked by sheer desperation, utter chaos in our trade, industry and commerce ending in general bankruptcy, collapse of the old states in their traditional wisdom in such a way that the crowns roll in the gutter by the dozens and there will be nobody to pick them up. 
Absolute impossibility to foresee how all this will end and who will be the victors in that struggle. Only one result absolutely certain. General exhaustion and the creation of circumstances for the final victory of the working class. End quote. So there's your silver lining if you happen to be a communist revolutionary and you want to see the overthrow of governments. And in one sense, Engels will get what he wants, at least in one country. But he's not the only person that foresees this. Some of the best military minds of the time see it too. We've told you about the field marshal in charge of Germany's war effort, the man known as von Moltke. But he is a pale shadow of his uncle, the man known as the Elder von Moltke, who commanded Prussian forces in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. By this time period, he's retired and he's on the speaking circuit. In 1906, he speaks to the German legislature and he warns them what a modern war is going to be like. Quote, The age of cabinet war is behind us. All we have now is people's war. Gentlemen, if the war that has been hanging over our heads now for more than ten years, like the Sword of Damocles, if this war breaks out, then its duration and its end will be unforeseeable. The greatest powers of Europe, armed as never before, will be going into battle with each other. Not one of them can be crushed so completely in one or two campaigns that it will admit defeat, that it will be compelled to conclude peace under hard terms, and that it will not come back, even if it is a year later, to renew the struggle. Gentlemen, it may be a war of seven years or thirty years' duration. And woe to him who sets Europe alight, who first puts the fuse to the powder keg. End quote. This long drop in the dark is going to set up the first, if you want to use the boxing analogy again, the first heavyweight championship fight the world has seen since Napoleon's day a hundred years before. In the interim, you've had a lot of you know, one-sided conflicts, you know, a champion like Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson fighting a person you've never heard of. Or you'll have something like the wars between the United States and Spain over Cuba and the Philippines, which is a rising soon-to-be first-class power against a declining soon-to-be third-class power. Or these great colonial conflicts where a nation like Britain will go in and crush the dervishes or the Zulus, with the occasional setback, of course. And they will use proto-machine guns against these natives armed with spears. One of these proto-machine guns, really a Gatling gun, was called the Maxim gun. And there was a famous colonial-era poem that said, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. In this upcoming war, both sides will have the Maxim gun. In fact, much more deadly modern versions of the Maxim gun that we call machine guns today. No one had ever seen a war where both sides had machine guns. The Franco-Prussian War saw the French trying to use these Gatling guns, these early machine guns, as best they could, but no one really had any clue what to do with them. That had all changed by 1914. We were seeing the most professional armies, perhaps that the world had ever seen, and certainly the largest that the world had ever seen, getting ready to clash in a conflict that was going to be like jumping off a cliff in the dark. Nobody could foresee the end of this. One thing was for sure. The army for Germany that is about to enter Belgium is probably the greatest army that the world had seen up until that time. And I say that with everyone knowing what a big fan I am of the Mongol uh, military science and history and their armies, and they're wonderful. But they get respect. People understand how incredibly dominant the Mongols were. The army of Germany during this time period, the Kaiserreich, 
this is like the Rodney Dangerfield of armies. They don't get any respect. And yet they are maybe, I mean, you create your top 10 list of the greatest armies throughout all history, and I put the Kaiserreich army on there. I'm not sure I put the German army from the Second World War on there. And yet part of the reason we don't know more about that First World War German army is because the Second World War German army, like so many things in that second conflict, overshadow it. In many ways, the Wehrmacht in the Second World War is flashier than the First World War German army. You know, once again, to get to the boxing character, Richard, the Wehrmacht is a big, heavy hitter knockout artist, and they go around and it's just boom, it's over in one round sometimes, and you stand up and it's thrilling and incredible, but, you know, once someone hits them back or, or, or beats them up a little, it's a different game. And once you start wearing them down, you know, you can continue to wear them down because they're not strong fundamentally at the core. They have a great punch, but they rest sort of on an uneven foundation. That was really where the strength of the First World War Army was. It may not have been as flashy with those giant knockouts and all that, but they had a better chin and they were, you know, they rested on firm foundations. It was a fantastic army. And no one remembers it today. And what's funny is, once again, it just becomes another thing that Adolf Hitler was wrong about when he wrote, quote, Thousands of years may pass, but never will it be possible to speak of heroism without mentioning the German army in the World War. Then from the veil of the past, the iron front of the gray steel helmet will emerge, unwavering and unflinching, an immortal monument. As long as there are Germans alive, they will remember that these men were sons of their nation. End quote. It's a fantastic army. And part of what makes it so great is this natural efficiency that, you know, is almost stereotypically German, is applied to military science during a time period where military science really does become science. It's become the age of the bean counters and efficiency experts when it comes to putting an army in the field. That's what the Napoleonic era creates, where you get this first part of the war machine, the ability to create these mass armies. Now imagine a guy like Alexander the Great, who I love to mention all the time, but you can imagine Julius Caesar too, guys who probably never commanded more than 80,000 people ever, and whose staffs, you know, were capable and they could deal with it and they were very efficient logistically and everything for their time period, but they were dealing with 80,000 men. In this era, you're dealing with 12 to 15 times that amount. What would Alexander the Great have done trying to you know, control one and a half million men. It's an exercise in higher math to try to do that. And when you hear about how the Germans had prepared minutely for this day that for so long had been called the day, der Tag, um, this attack into Belgium and to overwhelm France and everything, you get an idea of how much actual bean counting and planning is involved now in order to maintain these armies that would have been impossible 150 years before because this capability didn't exist. It's a function of modern civilization and the era of the 20th century. Now, to get an idea of size, you have to think about the division, which is the basic you know, unit that these militaries kind of operate with. It goes back to Napoleonic times. Divisions are still used, of course, in militaries today. And if you want to think about 15,000 men in a division as a kind of a rough size, it actually fluctuates in different militaries and whatnot, but just think 15,000 men. A 15,000-man division is probably more troops than either the Normans or the Saxons had at the Battle of Hastings, the pivotal 1066 battle that decided the fate of, you know, Britain at the time, England at the time. 
So each division is, is equivalent to a rather nice-sized early medieval army. The German army at the beginning of the war has more than 80 of these. Imagine trying to control 80 Norman armies. And it's not just about getting each division where it needs to go. It's about syncing what they do together. I mean, when you start organizing divisions into corps and corps into armies, then these armies have to support each other. They have to travel on different roads and then converge at certain points. And you have to think of the incredible math that's involved in these march columns. And it's hard to get your mind around. But these units are so large and these roads so narrow that when the head of the column starts walking, they've gone like 29 miles before the end of the column can start walking. Trying to plan to have food ready for these guys when they stop marching. And I mean, it's the logistics of this is incredible. And it's the main reason why you couldn't do this, you know, ages and ages ago. You just couldn't support it. In addition, all these armies are fabulously trained. The Germans are incredibly trained in terms of having even their reservists on the practice fields in Germany doing live fire exercises preparing for this day. This is what Barbara Tuckman writes about. You know, it starts with mobilization, and you get an idea of how planned every step is in the German army. Quote, Once the mobilization button was pushed, the whole vast machinery for calling up, equipping, and transporting two million men began turning automatically. Reservists went to their designated depots, were issued uniforms, equipment, and arms, formed into companies, and companies into battalions, were joined by cavalry, cyclists, artillery, medical units, cook wagons, blacksmith wagons, even postal wagons, moved according to prepared railway timetables to concentration points near the frontier, where they would be formed into divisions, divisions into corps, and corps into armies ready to advance and fight. One army corps alone, she writes, out of the total of 40 in the German forces, required 170 railway cars for officers, 965 for infantry, 2,960 for cavalry, 1,915 for artillery and supply wagons, 6,010 in all, grouped in 140 trains, and an equal number again for their supplies. From the moment the order was given, she writes, everything was to move at fixed time according to a schedule precise down to the number of train axles that would pass over a given bridge within a given time. End quote. When you realize how minutely planned and how, you know, punctual this whole thing must be in order to function, you can see why delays of even a few hours will throw your whole timetable off. You know, right before this whole conflict breaks out, and I mentioned it earlier, the Kaiser will turn to von Moltke, and he's panicking at the last minute. The great Supreme War leader is not so tough when it all looks like it's coming down. Unfortunately for him, or fortunately for him, the staff that works under him are tough as nails. Again, another thing this German army of this period brought to the table, which, to be honest, the second one did most of the time, too, is fantastic leadership. And the Kaiser at one point thinks the war with Britain's off, and he says, great, we can turn the armies around, you know, just send them to Russia instead of worrying about France and England at all. And von Moltke has to stop him and say, you do not improvise the deployment of millions. I think the exact line was, the deployment of millions cannot be improvised. But you get the point. This was a, an efficient plan to deploy the largest number of people that had ever been sent in a single area for a single purpose, probably in all human history. You think about Napoleon's greatest outrageous gamble, right, to invade Russia, utilizing an army composed of many, many, many different European peoples. 
You know, he had to scrape Germany and every place else to get enough people to send into Russia with something that was called the Grand Army, you know, in the early 1800s. And as this crazy endeavor sent maybe 750,000 men into Russia, the Germans were going to invade Belgium with more than twice that in an outflanking maneuver. That's not even the army that's holding the front. That's just a big, wide, swinging gate that's going to smash on top of the head of France. How do you control that many people? How do you even get them from one place to another? We kind of seem to think in our head that they can just march across, you know, mountainsides and country lanes and through fields and pastures, and sometimes they do. But most of the time, they get to places the same way most of us do. They utilize the road system. Think about what the road system in Belgium, tiny little, mostly rural Belgium, is going to be like with this massive, greatest-sized army probably ever put together, trying to march through it all in a short period of time. There were witnesses, of course, to this actually happening. One of the fun ones to read for me is Richard Harding Davis. Because Davis is one of those guys, he's an American. He also, you know, he's basically the war correspondent, uh, one of the main ones of his era. And he wrote about the deployment of American forces in Cuba, you know, at the turn of the century and all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's really a rah-rah Americana kind of guy, you know, Americans the best at everything and, and that sort of feeling. But he was there in Belgium as the German army comes through. And you can, I mean, I'm going to read you this extensively because you can hear in his writing his jaw is on the floor. And here's someone who doesn't think anybody does anything better than America. And he's getting a lesson in what the best army in the world looks like. And remember, this kind of force at this kind of level and potency hasn't been on display in anyone's living memory. You're getting a view of a nation at war like you would in Napoleonic times, but marched and equipped and organized and supported by a modern 20th century state. This was, well, you were beginning to see a tiny little glimmer of what the leap in the dark was going to entail. It was going to entail fighting armies like this one. Richard Harding Davis writes, quote, the entrance of the German army into Brussels has lost the human quality. It was lost as soon as the three soldiers who led the army bicycled into the Boulevard du Regent and asked the way to the Guerre du Nord. When they passed, the human note passed with them. What came after them, and 24 hours later is still coming, is not men marching, but a force of nature, like a tidal wave, an avalanche, or a river flooding its banks. At this minute, it is rolling through Brussels as the swollen waters of the Kamenov Valley swept through Johnstown. At the sight of the first few regiments of the enemy, he writes, we were thrilled with interest. After three hours, they had passed in one unbroken steel-gray column. We were bored. But when hour after hour passed, and there was no halt, no breathing time, no open spaces in the ranks, the thing became uncanny, inhuman. You returned to watch it fascinated. It held the mystery and menace of fog rolling towards you across the sea. End quote. He then goes on to describe the uniforms, which are pretty much the same color the Second World War German uniforms are. Feldgrau, I guess is the proper way to pronounce it, but basically it's just a gray. 
But during this time period, most nations had only relatively recently gone away from gaudy, colorful clothing. You know, bright red scarlet for British troops has only recently given way to khaki. And the French army still wore stuff that looked like they belong in Napoleon's army, right? They're going to wear red pants and blue jackets, and they're going to carry sabers, and their cavalry is going to have breastplates and horsehair helmets. I mean, it's kooky stuff. Most militaries are moving away from that. The Germans... Use of gray, Harding thinks, is the most fantastic use of camouflage he's ever seen. The British khaki is often compared to a canary that's gotten dusty. Davis goes on and on about how the minute these German soldiers get 100 yards from you, you can't see them anymore. He says he was watching some German cavalry ride by and he could see the horses, but he couldn't see the guys on them because they just sort of blend with the fog and the mist and the twilight and the early morning hours in that color. So he goes on and on about how great that is and how scientific it is. He goes on, quote, Yesterday, Major General von Jarotsky, the German military governor of Brussels, assured Burgermaster Max that the German army would not occupy the city, but would pass through it. It is still passing. I have followed in campaigns six armies, but excepting not even our own, the Japanese, or the British, I have not seen one so thoroughly equipped. I'm not speaking of the fighting qualities of any army, only of the equipment and organization. The German army moved into this city as smoothly and as compactly as at the Empire State Express. There were no halts, no open places, no stragglers. This army, he writes, has been on active service for three weeks, and so far there is not apparently a chin strap or a horseshoe missing. It came in with the smoke pouring from cook stoves on wheels, and in an hour had set up post office wagons from which mounted messengers galloped along the line of columns distributing letters and at which soldiers posted picture postcards. The infantry, he writes, came in files of five, two hundred men to each company, the lancers in columns of four, with not a a pennant missing. The quick-firing guns and field pieces were one hour at a time in passing, each gun with its ammunition wagon taking 20 seconds in which to pass. The men of the infantry sang, Fatherland, my fatherland. Between each line of song, they took three steps. At times, 2,000 men were singing together in absolute rhythm and beat. When the melody gave way, the silence was broken only by the stamp of iron-shod boots, and then again the song rose. When the singing ceased, the bands played marches. They were followed by the rumble of siege guns, the creaking of wheels, and of chains clanking against the cobblestones and the sharp bell-like voices of the bugles. For seven hours the army passed in such solid columns that not once might a taxicab or trolley car pass through the city. Like a river of steel it flowed, gray and ghost-like. Then, as dusk came and as thousands of horses' hooves and thousands of iron boots continued to tramp forward, they struck tiny sparks from the cobblestones, but the horses and men who beat out the sparks were invisible. At midnight, pack wagons and siege guns were still passing. At seven this morning, I was awakened by the tramp of men and bands playing jauntily. Whether they marched all night or not, I do not know, but now for 26 hours, the gray army has rumbled by with the mystery of fog and the pertinacity of a steamroller. End quote. That was a long quote, but that's, that's the German army of the Kaiserreich on campaign. The German army in the Second World War is that country's best attempt to recreate that. Now, I've always believed that the very ferocity and the scariness of this Kaiserreich German army 
worked against it at the beginning of the war in a way that hurt it throughout the entire you know, history of the war, and I think long afterwards, helped establish this German reputation as sort of the bad guys. Because this army was so intimidating, so scary, everything from the precision drill to the uh, equipment to how well organized they were to the logistics to the leadership to the intimidating elements built into it. I mean, they had a wonderful uh, unit called the Death's Head Hussars, which goes back to, you know, the Napoleonic Wars earlier, actually. And they wear the old fashioned Hussars fur helmet. This is in 1914, folks. This isn't, you know, 1810. The fur helmet of the Hussars, and on the fur helmet is a skull. Reminds you a little bit of the SS forces in the Second World War, but it shows you that all of this predated you know, what the Nazis did. The Nazis were just updating a lot of classic German traditions and in a lot of cases perverting them and staining them with blackness and everything. But the Death's Head Hussars are famous and intimidating as they're meant to be. But then you take that really nasty, ferocious, intimidating army that looks like it could take on anyone in the world and the first time you see them in action, they're taking on, God bless them, the Belgians. A tiny little neutral nation that's less than 100 years old and has never fought a war. In fact, is so small and is surrounded by great powers that they rationally figured out a long time ago, it doesn't matter how much effort they put into defense, they can't win. You know, the Belgians totally unprepared for warfare lose only a little bit faster than the Belgians obsessively prepared for warfare. They put their trust in these international agreements they had with people who were going to guarantee their security, which is how this whole thing's happening anyway, right? But they did build some defenses, maybe as a sign that, you know, we can't kill you, but we could hurt you. And the defenses are really cool because it's really right in that period in, in human history where fortifications, forts, reach sort of their high water mark. I mean, we still build forts today, but it's nothing like it was, well, pretty much from the beginning of, you know, human history until, well, about the time we're talking about here, because then you could base an entire defense strategy on forts. Nowadays, we have these special positions where you'll guard them with a fort. But if anybody decides they're going to start launching missiles and bombs and all, I mean, it doesn't matter. Forts don't hold up. That's something we learn very soon in this story. But in the 1880s, when these Belgian forts are built, this is the period where it looks like modern tech is going to make these things like space age, like something out of Star Wars, one of those planetary defenses. And they build these wonderful subterranean forts, Barbara Tuckman said, like castles sunk underground. And what they'll do is, you know, I'm reminded of the old uh, Godzilla films and the Monster Zero films where you'd have some planet and it would, you know, have a gun that would just rise up from the planet's surface, shoot, and then go back down underground. And that's what happened in these forts. And I have to remind myself how cool that is. This is like steampunk stuff because when they're building these forts for Belgium, it's the same time that the United States and Mexico are trying to corral Geronimo and a bunch of Apaches in the American Southwest. While that's going on, the Belgians are building underground forts. And you can see some of this stuff on video if you look at the Maginot line, which comes a generation after this, obviously. But it's the same kind of thing where, it's, you know, if you look at it from above ground, you can barely tell there's a fort there. 
when in fact underground, you know, massive concrete and, you know, little railroads underneath moving guns and ammunition around. It's, it's cool stuff. And the way the Belgian designer, who was one of the best in the world, built this system, he took advantage of the natural river and the slight rise in the hill and everything in there. And he built six big forts with six small forts in between, and they all cover each other's fields of fire with their guns. So, you know, what Fort A can reach with their guns, Fort B can reach with theirs too. So they overlap. So there's never a place in the distance anyway where the guns can't reach the enemy. And in between these forts, the Belgians have it so that they're going to put guys in trenches. So between every fort are people. They're supported by the guns. It's this wonderful system. And then you throw more troops out you know, 500 yards, 1,000 yards ahead to keep enemy artillery away. And you have this system where maybe you can't win a war against someone like the Germans, but you can give them a bloody nose and maybe say, see, you, you really don't want to do this. Um, the Germans aren't sure about that. And when they come into Belgium, they're kind of thinking the Belgian army is either just going to stand aside, like I said earlier, or maybe, you know, a few shots up in the air. We protected our honor. Now we're going to stand aside. And the first sign that the Germans are wrong about this is that the bridges are blown up when they get to them. The tunnels are blown up. The railroads are blown up. That maddens the Germans because they're on this tight schedule, right? So now they have to deal with at least transportation nightmares on this road system that was already going to be clogged terribly. I mean, there's your first nightmare. And then the Germans try to cross some of these rivers on the frontier in pontoons, and the Belgians start shooting at them. So the Germans put into action a group that they have designed specifically to take these forts. And this is the part of the story you have to understand where we are. When war is declared, you have like 72 hours where everybody's trying to get their heads around this idea. And at the same time, they flipped all these switches for mobilization, the doomsday device, I called it, where they're calling up all these forces and everybody, you know, we don't have enough stuff here. And everybody's scrambling in what they assume is a race to the front lines, which they don't want to lose. Remember, what if they gave a war and only one side came? Meanwhile, though, while everybody is concentrating, it's called their forces, the Germans have like 30,000 guys that were set up in advance to go out basically in the pregame of the First World War, I guess you could say, and take out these forts if they have to, because these forts are blocking the roads. You cannot get to that Belgian road system that you need to get from Germany to France if you don't take the forts around a place like Liège or Namur. And so 30,000 men have been training for years for just this job. Like I said earlier, the day was called Der Tag, the day. This has been planned for for a long time. And the Germans have essentially a special unit of 30,000 guys whose job it is to take out these forts if the Belgians don't stand aside and surrender them. The Belgians don't stand aside and surrender them. And in fact, the Belgians are going to teach the first great lesson of the war about what's changed since the last time great powers faced off. How much the killing power that machines afforded mankind on the battlefield, how much that had changed the age-old equation of war. Machines had been taken over for a long time, becoming more and more important. This is the war where they take over completely. And man's supremacy on the battlefield, even though they're the ones who run the machines, will always be now you know, secondary compared to the killing power and mechanization that can be brought to bear you know, by modern societies. The technology was devastating when used against tribal peoples and nations that couldn't compete militarily. 
the Belgians are going to show what a tiny little army of chocolate soldiers is what the Germans thought they were going to face. What a tiny little army of chocolate soldiers can do to the greatest army in the world because of the deadliness of the weapons at hand. And one of the interesting sort of sub-themes of this whole upcoming conflict is how long it takes some people to absorb the lessons that are being taught in this conflict. You know, lesson number one is how deadly the weapons are and how you have to account for that. Some of the generals and military thinkers understood this going into the war because they had paid close attention to that 1905 war I told you about, the Russo-Japanese War, which, by the way, American President Teddy Roosevelt won a Nobel Prize for helping to broker the peace for that. But that taught lessons about what happens when two sides armed with machine guns and two sides armed with modern artillery and all that face off. But the lessons were not the kind of lessons some people wanted to learn. I mean, if you were a cavalry commander, for example, your arm of the military is already not looked upon as very survivable. The wars all since Napoleon have kind of shown that, listen, cavalry just dies on the battlefield. The only thing that cavalry commanders still have going in their favor is there aren't really automobiles yet. There will be by the time this war is over. But they're a novelty. They'll be used in strange, innovative situations. But militaries of the world don't have tons of automobiles, you know, running. It's not mechanized like the Second World War. Everybody's using horses. Even if they die on the battlefield, you know, like sheaves of wheat being scythed down, you have nothing to replace that mobility with. But these cavalry commanders don't want to hear that it's even worse than it used to be. Wow, wait till the modern artillery machine guns get a hold of your cavalry. They don't want to hear that, so they talk about the results as being unrepresentative. Commanders who are very, um, you know, involved in the idea of the power of the bayonet and the charge and the offensive, for example, the entire French outlook on war right now is connected to this idea that you attack. And, you know, you attack with the bayonet doesn't really mean you're going to maybe get into hand-to-hand combat, but that aggressive style of warfare is what you want. If you've been preaching that, and that's your country's doctrine, and your entire military is organized around the culture of the offensive, and cran, which is the French word, I guess, for, like, guts, and, you know, it's all about guts. Nobody wants to hear that machine guns just rip guts out. That's the only thing they care about, guts. And it doesn't work to have bayonet charges and ridiculous offensives. Well, the French would say, yes, well, what doesn't work for the Russians or the Japanese, will work for the French, and that's why we have a great military. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to rationalize what you don't want to learn. Many of the militaries of the world are organized like Napoleonic times. They don't want to hear that that is a completely wrong way to be organized. The French cavalry heading off to war, as I said earlier, but you have to imagine this. If you want to see what Napoleon's soldiers looked like, go look at pictures of the French cavalry in 1914 going off to war with metal breastplates and horsehair helmets, and you would have to be an expert to look at a picture of them in 1914 and a picture of Napoleon's cavalry in 1814 and find the differences. The officers are going to go to war in white gloves. They're going to have swords. They're going to stand up and troops are going to march into combat in like billiard ball formations or, you know, bowling pin formations, drill formations from the battlefield. None of the people who consider this to be an integral part of military culture want to learn that the rules have changed. In 1905, they got one lesson. In 1914, they were about to get another. And the Germans get theirs when they try to take these forts. On August 5th, 1914, the Germans attack four of these Belgian forts. 
Now, between the forts, the Belgians have quickly put some infantry, and there are a couple machine guns around and whatnot, and the Germans, you know, they're in a bit of a rush here. They don't have time to sit there and starve things out. This 30,000-man force with artillery has to go in there and power this through so that the armies behind them can continue their, you know, huge assault through Belgium on France, and they charge these, you know, entrenchments, and the Belgians slaughter them. Slaughter them. Mounds of bodies, and the Belgians can't figure out the best way to deal with it because the mounds of bodies become a problem. Because the mounds of bodies become places German troops can hide behind and shoot from behind and launch attacks from behind. And the Belgians are trying to figure out, okay, do we shoot through these bodies and create, can you, can you create a hole through bodies if you shoot through them with a machine gun long enough? Or do we send out people to risk their lives to create holes in the bodies that we can shoot through? Barbara Tuckman has a passage in her book where she quotes the commander of the Belgian forces that were resisting this German assault by General von Emmich and his special brigades. Tuckman writes, quote, On August 5th, Emmich's brigades opened the attack on the four easternmost forts of Liège with a cannonade by field artillery followed by an infantry assault. The light shells made no impression on the forts, and the Belgian guns poured a hail of fire on the German troops, slaughtering their front ranks. Company after company came on, making for the spaces in between the forts where the Belgian entrenchments had not been completed. At some points where they broke through, the Germans stormed up the slopes where the guns could not be depressed to reach them and were mowed down by the fort's machine guns. The dead piled up in ridges a yard high. At Fort Barchon, Belgians, seeing the German lines waver, charged with the bayonet and threw them back. Again and again, the Germans returned to the assault, spending lives like bullets in the knowledge of plentiful reserves to make up for the losses. She now quotes a Belgian officer who was there. Quote, they made no attempt at deploying, a Belgian officer described it later, but came on line after line, almost shoulder to shoulder, until we shot them down. The fallen were heaped on top of each other in an awful barricade of dead and wounded that threatened to mask our guns and cause us trouble. So high did the barricade become that we didn't know whether to fire through it or to go out and clear openings with our hands. But would you believe it? This veritable wall of dead and dying enabled those wonderful Germans to creep closer and actually charge up the embankment. They got no farther than halfway, though, because our machine guns and rifles swept them back. Of course, we had our losses, but they were slight compared to the carnage we inflicted on our enemies. End quote. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that Belgian officer's respect for those wonderful Germans, as he called them, exhibiting the military virtues of valor that were so celebrated during this period where the romance of warfare, you know, which had always been strong in human culture, was probably at its height. The 19th century, the romance was incredible. This is the era where that romance runs into reality in a way that you just can't pretend. I mean, guys like, you know, William Tecumseh Sherman, the Civil War general for the U.S., famously said that war is hell and its glory is all moonshine. But that didn't really seep into the mass of the population. As one historian had pointed out, they weren't publishing a whole lot of combat photos and really nasty, terrible stuff for the folks back home at any time during these periods. So there wasn't a lot of stuff to really counteract the romantic ideas of war. This is the conflict where you can't hide it anymore. 
And even though this Belgian officer looks at this German assault on his fort as something akin to the charge of the Light Brigade, the famous doomed charge of that British cavalry during the Crimean War, But here's the thing that this war is going to teach. If you watch the charge of the Light Brigade and you think it's magnificent and and brave, a doomed sort of attack on the part of incredibly courageous men, what happens if after the charge fails, they send another one and the same results occur? And then they send another one and the same results occur. And then they do it again and again. At what point does this wonderful, doomed, romantic celebration of the courage of the military heart become something obscene. This war is going to take us there, and it's going to pound the point home till you're sick of it. After the failure of that German attack on the Belgian defenses, the Germans regroup to attack again that same night, August 5th. They're waiting for the sun to go down, and witnesses who were with the troops describe them as nervous and anxious and gloomy about the prospects of assaulting you know, these defenses again, what's more doing it at night? Throughout most of human history, night assaults, if you were lucky, had torchlight illumination. It was always a huge gamble, very disorienting. You couldn't see anything. That was going to change with this war, and it was going to be a facet of 20th century warfare that we may never see repeated again. Now that night vision has become a battlefield staple, there's no reason to light up the battlefield. In fact, if one side has night vision and the other doesn't, you don't want it lit up. In this period, these Germans were going to go into conflict where the nighttime darkness could be banished by technology. You had searchlights in these forts, and you had searchlights on the German side sometimes. You had shells that you could shoot up into the air that would illuminate the night sky. And you have to imagine bunches of those shells going off, you know, at at separate intervals where they overlap. And so they're getting brighter and darker. And, you know, the look of it reminds you of like a flash bulb flash, that sort of strobe light, fluorescent illumination, and it just casts a ghostly pall over the whole battlefield so that every time you get that burst of light, you see thousands of people like ants moving along the battlefield, and you have artillery going off. And I mean, just think about how weird and disorienting being in the middle of a modern battlefield would be in the daytime and now take away the light. It's freaky. And that's what these German soldiers are about to face. And they're understandably nervous. They expected some sort of romantic kind of war. Even if it was dangerous, you had a chance for heroism and a chance to die for your country. I mean, this is a generation that is absolutely infused with the ideas of nationalism and that dying for your country is a huge, glorious thing that you should look forward to. And now they're seeing, wait a minute, how glorious is it to be one of many people mowed down by machine guns, you know, just sort of randomly? They don't want to go on the assault again. And this attack starts to bog down after it starts. Now, there's an officer who's roaming around the battlefield who normally is in Berlin with the high general staff of the German military. The Germans encourage their staff members to get out in the field sometimes and see what's going on. And this guy had a particular interest in this battle because he was one of the people who planned it. For years, he'd been planning this battle. He took his vacations from Germany to Belgium just to look around where the battle was going to be fought. And now, since he had a vested interest in hoping his plans were carried out correctly, he's wandering around this battlefield at night looking for what the holdup is and finds out that a general commanding a certain part of the attack is dead, killed by machine gun fire. So this guy, this staff officer, who historians have described as absolutely devoid of fear... Big man, 
grabs the unit of the dead general, five or 6,000 men, in the dark and starts leading them toward the objective. You know, you got all these forts, more than 400 guns from the forts, and then the guns on the German side. It's just got to be this unbelievable chaotic mess in the dark, and this one general has grabbed this unit and is, and is heading toward the city of Liège, which is protected by this circle of forts, right, with men in between all the forts. He finds a spot that's undefended, leads this unit past the forts into the city on this gamble that maybe the city won't be defended. Or maybe if I walk in there with 6,000 guys, they'll just lay down their weapons. Now, the Germans don't have a lot to celebrate in their military history in the Second World War because the cause was so nasty. It doesn't matter, you know, how many good things their troops did in terms of military history, the military side of things. The cause is so corrupt, it taints everything. The Germans can take some justifiable pride in the adventure story of this guy because first he walks in the city and everybody just sort of surrenders to him there. And then he goes up to the citadel, the main defense in the center of the city, with his sword hilt, he pounds on the door demanding the surrender, and they open up the door and they surrender. Yikes. Talk about boldness. Talk about gambling. This is a basically unknown German officer who, because of the name he is making for himself, will be in a position that some historians will call the military dictator of Germany within four years. His name is Eric Ludendorff. Ludendorff's actions that night remind us once again that even though, as I've said several times, the machines have kind of taken over the dominant role in war fighting, artillery, guns, all those things are machines, you can't discount the human factor. In fact, the human factor is probably the dominant factor amongst adversaries that are somewhat evenly matched. I mean, no amount of military genius is going to save Belgium from Germany. The you know, differences between the potential of the two sides is just too great. But between relatively equal or only moderately unequal powers, leadership could be the determining factor. And the boldness shown by Ludendorff that night is a precursor to what we can expect from him later on and what the Russians can expect from him very, very soon. Now, Ludendorff's very audacious capture of the city of Liège doesn't solve the problem that the Germans have because all those forts are still active. He's, he's taken the city. He hasn't taken the forts. And they're still there, ready to shoot up German march columns if, those, if they're not taken before the big march starts. So Ludendorff calls for his, you know, ace in the hole. As I said, the Germans have been planning for this attack for a very long time. They knew that the Belgians might resist, and they knew if they did, they had to have a weapon that was greater than anything the people who built these forts ever envisioned. In the 1880s, although some of these forts date to the 1890s, in that era, the forts were basically guaranteed to the Belgian government to be invulnerable to any cannon then known in the world. But the cannons that were then known in the world are no longer the maximum size cannons available in the world. Those belong to the Germans. And no one even knew it until they first showed up on the scene. And they become an even better demonstration than the machine gun fire mowing down those poor Germans charging the Belgian defenses, that the weaponry was simply doomsday device-like, if you imagine it magnified thousands of times. The weapons that are on the way from Germany to Belgium to reduce these forts are the best example I can think of 
to show how much has changed since the last time the great powers fought each other in Europe a hundred years before. In nowhere is that more on display and evident than in artillery, which a hundred years ago during Napoleon's time was already what Napoleon thought decided battles. And he was a guy who made his bones in the artillery. He rose through the ranks as an artillery officer. He's known for its use on the battlefield. Here's a guy that, that could shock people with the killing power of well-used artillery, and his big guns were firing 12-pound cannonballs. 12-pound cannonballs. The gun itself weighed about 1,200 pounds. It's the same gun, essentially, in, in one case that both sides in the U.S. Civil War used, about a about a 1,200-pound cannon. The largest of the guns that are on the way from Berlin to Belgium, the largest of them weighs 300,000 pounds. 1,200 pounds to 300,000 pounds. That's quite a change. The shells that Napoleon's 12-pounders fired were between 9 and 12 pounds. The shell that the largest of these guns, a 420-millimeter mortar, fires, that shell weighs 2,000 pounds. The Napoleonic cannon that was so deadly at the time that it was shocking had an effective range of about 2,000 yards. The largest of these guns on the way from Berlin, which aren't even designed, some of them, for range at all, the largest of these is a siege cannon, so it doesn't even have to fire very far has seven times the range of that French cannon that was designed in its day to shoot far. This is an entirely new kind of warfare. And the people who actually see this gun after it's assembled are slack-jawed. And assembled it must be, because think about how hard it would be trying to transport any of these large guns, especially the largest of them, now. Now turn the clock back to 1914-style technology where automobiles aren't even very old. They're a relatively new product. Tractors are even newer. Railways don't go everywhere you need them to, and these guns weigh a ton. Guns that are this large usually can only be put on ships. That's how you get them from place to place. These are essentially naval guns in size. We're talking about a gun that is just over a 16-inch gun. That's traditionally a naval gun. Later on, you'll have rail guns that are that large, too. Same problem, though. How do you get them from place to place? They're so big. They're so heavy. The largest battleship guns, you know, ever deployed were the Yamato Japanese super battleships, and theirs were 18.1 inches. The famous American battleships, the last effective ones we built, the Iowa class, the Missouris, they had 16-inch guns. Imagine those guns trying to be transported, you know, across land, getting them to where you need them to go. The guns on the way to reduce these forts are that kind of size. The largest of them, 16-inch guns. It takes forever and is an amazing engineering feat just to get these guns to where they need to be. And then when they get there, the crew for these largest guns, and it's like a couple hundred guys have to lay cement, the cement has to dry, the gun has to be assembled and put together. Then when they want to fire this thing, this gives you an idea of the monsters we're talking about, the gun crew had to go three football fields away, 300 yards away, 
and fire the thing electronically. And they were still so close that they had to put cotton wadding over their eyes, their nose, and their ears. And they had to fire this thing while their mouth was open, or they'd blow out their eardrums and potentially worse than that. Imagine what this weapon does. The shell is fired in a 4,000-foot arc. It takes a full minute to get from the gun to the target. So you fire it, and then there's the 60-second wait until the explosion happens. Unlike Napoleon's time, we have cool shells that can be delayed-action-fused and armored-piercing so that when you fire them at these forts, they hit the top of the fort. That's the kind of arc they have. They don't fire flat at something. They fire way up in the air, and then it drops right on top of these forts. A shell that pierces armor or concrete, and then once it reaches its maximum depth, then it explodes. The wonderful world of science and engineering is going to take over the battlefields of this upcoming conflict in a way that has never happened before. And this weapon to me most symbolizes in this early part of the war, you know, your example of here's your wake-up call. Here's your Darth Vader. Here's what 20th century warfare is going to mean. The gun arrives, along with some cousins who are slightly smaller from the also great um, armaments works of Skoda in austro Hungarian territory then, and the weapons created by Krupp and Skoda start shelling these forts, and they start going down, and they start going down fast. Now, those of you who've listened to many of my shows know I'm not a huge John Keegan fan, but as a historian, I think he's best on his World War One and World War II histories, and he wrote about this gun's arrival outside the forts and said, quote, After it was in place, the bombardment began. The crew, wearing head padding, lay prone 300 yards away while the gun was fired electronically. Quoting somebody at the scene now, quote, 60 seconds ticked by, the time needed for the shell to traverse its 4,000-meter trajectory, and everyone listened in to the telephone report of our battery commander, who had his observation post 1,500 meters from the bombardment fort and could watch at close range the column of smoke, earth, and fire that climbed into the heavens. Keegan continues, quote, The first of the shells, delay-fused to explode only after penetration of the fort's protective skin, fell short. Six minutes later, the next was fired. Then five more, each of them walked up towards the target as the elevation was corrected. The relentless approaching footfall of the detonations spoke to the paralyzed defenders of the devastation to come. The eighth struck home. Then the gun fell silent for the night. But the next morning, joined by the other, which had completed the journey from Essen, the bombardment reopened. The range had been found, and soon the 2,000-pound shells were, quote, stripping away armor plate and blocks of concrete, cracking arches and poisoning the air with heavy brown fumes, end quote. And Keegan then goes on to say, you know, I'm not going to murder the poor French names of these forts, but at 1230... One fort is a wreck, he says, and is physically incapacitated and surrenders. They then shift fire to another fort, which surrenders five hours later. A third explodes when its magazine is hit by one of these shells, completely destroying the whole thing. That will happen to a couple of these forts, by the way. And when they find those, the Germans who are first on the scene say that they look like, quote, 
a miniature alpine landscape with debris strewn about like pebbles in a mountain stream. Heavy artillery and ammunition had been thrown everywhere. A cupola had been blown from its place and had fallen on its dome and it now looked like a monstrous tortoise lying on its shell. As these forts began to fall, the artillery then closed in on the fort that had the general commanding this whole affair. And he himself wrote what it was like to be under fire by weapons that no one had ever seen the like of in human history. Quote, A shell wrecked the arcade under which the general staff were sheltering. All light was extinguished by the force of the explosion, and the officers ran the risk of asphyxiation by the horrible gases emitted from the shell. When the firing ceased, I ventured out on a tour of inspection on the external slopes, which I found had been reduced to a rubble heap. A few minutes later, he writes, the bombardment was resumed. It seemed as though all the German batteries were firing salvos. Nobody will ever be able to form an adequate idea of what the reality was like. I have only learned since that when the big siege mortars entered into the action, they hurled against us shells weighing a thousand kilos, the explosive force of which surpassed anything known hitherto. Their approach was to be heard in an acute buzzing, and then they burst with a thunderous roar, raising clouds of missiles, stones, and dust. After some time passed amid these horrors, I wished to return to my observation tower, but I'd hardly advanced a few feet into the gallery when a great blast passed by and I was thrown violently to the ground. I managed to get up and continued on my way, only to be stopped by a choking cloud of poisonous gas. It was a mixture of the gas from an explosion and the smoke of a fire in the troops' quarters. We were driven back, half suffocated. Looking out of a peephole, I saw to my horror that the fort had fallen. Slopes and counter-slopes being a chaos of rubbish, while huge tongues of flame were shooting forth from the throat of the fortress. My first and last thought, he writes, was to try to save the remnant of the garrison. I rushed out to give orders and saw some soldiers whom I mistook for Belgian gendarmes. I called them and then fell again. Poisonous gases seemed to grip my throat as in a vice. End quote. He woke up to one of his aides and a German officer giving him water, those soldiers he thought were Belgian were German, and they were the first to enter the fort after a shell detonated, you know, the magazine, and the entire fort went up in a giant explosion. These are enormous metal and steel and concrete, you know, forts. These guns were pulverizing forts that were built to withstand the guns of just a generation before and doing so with ease. That's a demonstration of how much things had changed just since the 1880s. And think of how much things had changed from Napoleon's time to the 1880s. This was a 19th century world discovering the horrors of 20th century warfare. And they were going to have to learn how to deal with this new reality one horrific, bloody lesson at a time. The lesson of Liège is that the eras of, you know, basing your defenses on forts is over. This is a lesson that will not be learned and will be taught again in France in May 1940. It's also my opinion that the Germans are being taught a lesson even as this story's going down and the guns are pulverizing the forts in Belgium. The Germans should be picking up on what, 
you know, current events are trying to teach them, they will never take that lesson to heart and they will repeat these mistakes that they're making in Belgium again in the Second World War. It's safe to say, I think, that the damage done to the German reputation globally because of what's going on in Belgium won't go away till at least the 1950s. And I think you could make a very decent case, have never gone away. And it involves German treatment of neutral countries and non-combatants wherever they find them. And, you know, as you watch this story unfold, it's clear that in some respects the Germans just don't get it. I mean, you would think they would. This is a country that, you know, it's funny now, they've lost this reputation due to two world wars and their involvement in both of them. But they used to be considered an absolute hotbed of human culture. You know, the cutting edge of art and science and literature and thought and philosophy. I mean, all these things that the Germans really prided themselves in. Music. I mean, an incredible people that guys like H.G. Wells were intimidated by. Couldn't help admire them, but was intimidated by how, how ahead of things they seemed to be, how advanced they seemed to be in all these areas. How strangely ironic, though, that a people that are so advanced in those areas could have so many blind spots in areas that one would think are related to the higher culture aspects. Do the people who are producing such cutting-edge higher culture, how do they miss something that's likely to be as damaging to your international reputation as what history now calls the Rape of Belgium. Now, the Rape of Belgium, I should point out a little bit, is a propagandist's fantasy. I mean, they've made it into practically a movie, The Rape of Belgium. Go see The Rape of Dan King in your history books, and then you will see something that propagandists did not need to magnify at all to create a world-class historical atrocity killing field. Belgium wasn't that, but it was something. And that something would come back to haunt the Germans in ways that they almost seem ignorant of. Again, you know, we quoted Hitler earlier about propaganda. Hitler sees it after the war, that the Germans were just blindsided by 20th century global communications and the ability to manipulate world opinion by taking things that were real, facts, and blowing them up to levels that just incensed whole societies, including neutral countries. The Germans don't understand that the way they're conducting themselves in Belgium is affecting public opinion in places like the United States, which have large German-American populations, by the way, which are cheering, you know, the, the feats of arms and how the German military is showing themselves to be so dominant. American papers are not 100% against the Germans at this point. In some places, American papers are in regions that are dominated by German-Americans. But they can't explain away what's happening in Belgium and what starts the day the invasion of Belgium happens. The Germans start killing Belgian citizens. And they do so as part of what is now understood to be a policy of frightfulness, as it was called. I'm not sure that's the perfect translation of the term. But the Germans intended to, you know, set examples of people that did things that the Germans had said you shouldn't do. They said you shouldn't blow up bridges. If they find you blowing up bridges, they are going to punish you, and they do not give probation. They will hang you. They will shoot you if they catch you trying to blow up a bridge. 
The Germans take that even farther, though. If you're near a village where a bridge gets blown up, the village might pay the price. The Germans believed in collective punishment. They also believed in taking hostages for good behavior. And when people did stuff anyway, they killed the hostages. This has been one of the most contentious parts of, you know, new scholarship all the time on the question of atrocities in Belgium. Because, you know, during the war, it is this huge deal. And those of you, by the way, who've lived long enough have seen this same dynamic at work where real atrocities happen. I remember in the first Gulf War, the stories of, you know, Iraqi soldiers taking Kuwaiti babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor and then stealing the incubators. And all these stories are normal because real atrocities are going on. But then they're magnified because the magnification works to the benefit of the enemies of the people the propaganda is working against. The Germans went in and did a bunch of things in Belgium that make them look bad because they were bad, and then the foreign media, like the British, were fantastic at this, get a hold of those stories and turn them into the worst things you can ever think of. The Germans only began to get this, you know, a few people at a time. I mean, later on, much later on, the Kaiser's son, a guy known as the Crown Prince, would say that Belgium is when the Germans lost the first great battle of the war. But they didn't lose it on the battlefield. They crushed the Belgians. They lost it in the realm of global public opinion because of their behavior, behavior that the Germans will use all throughout this war and again in the Second World War. This tendency to ignore neutrality, you know, as we said earlier, the German diplomat, you know, told the British diplomat, this, you're going to go to war over a piece of paper. It's just a piece of neutrality is often violated in war. That's kind of how they thought. They also thought that you treat non-combatants harshly. And, you know, to sort of soften that a little, it's worth noting that the Germans treat their own people this way. They are a stern, rather strict, some would say severe society, especially, you know, the Prussianized elements of it. And they expect, you know, obedience and discipline and conformity to the rules. And that's what they expect of their own people. And then they go into Belgium. And when people violate the rules, they get treated harshly. Germans just fail to foresee, maybe with cultural blinders, that people that come from much less severe traditions would maybe, you know, play that quality up as something uniquely German and nasty. Not just that, it should be pointed out that a lot of different peoples, you know, in the world at this time were having problems dealing with irregular fighting. This was a big deal at the time. Irregular fighting, of course, is when you know, regular people take up arms and start shooting at your soldiers, like guerrilla troops, for example. In Vietnam, the U.S. fought Viet Cong guerrillas. Very difficult to do. Causes all kinds of problems. Atrocities tend to happen. Uh, the British had just dealt with this not altogether successfully in South Africa, where atrocity issues happened. The French were dealing with it in Asia and North Africa. The Russians were dealing with it in Central Asia. The Japanese were dealing with it in China and Korea. This is a problem a lot of countries were having. The Germans were very worried about what were called free shooters. Today, we would call them snipers. Because in the War of 1870, they had a lot of problems with snipers. So they went into Belgium, and if they thought snipers were there, people paid the price left, right, and center. I mean, whole towns would be executed if a sniper was loose. And here's the worst part. Snipers may not have even been loose. Some historians say these are a bunch of gun-shy soldiers who've never faced, you know, live fire where someone was shooting at them. 
they may hear some German soldier's gun go off from the other side of town and start killing civilians. It's a very controversial issue. Some historians still foam at the mouth about it. John Keegan strikes me as somebody who's, who feels this absolute need to defend this idea of German, you know, uh, uh, devilishness. I have a couple of uh, pieces I like, though. Author Lynn McDonald um, wrote about this. I thought she did a very balanced job. And so did Neil Ferguson. And Ferguson, what I love about what Ferguson says is he goes and finds, like, uh, the original thing that happened and then how it got blown out of proportion. And But nonetheless... All these people emphasize the same thing. These atrocities happen. These people die. The Germans practiced collective punishment, all these awful things that most uh, most of us revile today. And then they paid an extra price for it by providing the basic seeds that would grow into enemy propaganda that would turn the Germans into Genghis Khan, basically, which is exactly what Lynn MacDonald compares it to when she writes, quote, in the United Kingdom, Germany's honor had already been tried and found guilty. Germany's name was mud, and now that she had condemned herself out of her own mouth, no rumor of bestial outrage was too vile to be believed. They emanated mainly from the refugees, who had fled half-terrified out of their wits from the towns and villages of Belgium. They were the first-hand accounts from people who had escaped from the flames of Andenne, where 200 hostages had been shot, from Tamines, where 400 were gunned down and bayoneted, and from the inhabitants of Dinant, who had aroused the ire of the Germans by destroying a vital bridge. The Germans' revenge was to round up more than 600 men, women, and children and shoot them in cold blood. The youngest, age three weeks, died in his mother's arms. These stories were true, and the Germans made no attempt to keep them secret. They were, after all, intended to warn. Inevitably, as they traveled, they spawned fictions in their wake. Of rape, of macabre killings, of mutilation, of breasts and hands sliced off by sabers, of crucifixions, of babies dipped into boiling water or swung for sport against brick walls. There were even whispers of cannibalism. Grains of truth swelled and grew into a crop of rumors of unspeakable villainies unsurpassed since the hordes of Genghis Khan had rampaged and pillaged across Asia. In France and in Britain, the newspapers were full of them. Public opinion hardened. It was no longer merely a just war. It was positively righteous, and people were out for blood. End quote. I don't think the Germans have recovered from that image even now, have they? You talk about a misstep. What if the Germans had treated neutral countries and non-combatants with more respect how different might their reputation be today? What if they'd learned from Belgium in 1914 and reacted differently in 1939? One thing's for sure, this whole idea of frightfulness in order to cow, you know, the people that you had just subjected to the boots of your soldiers, that didn't work out. Bad policy. Foundations and the underpinnings of that idea, you know, just didn't work. And the people in charge of it were guys like von Moltke, who said you know, to his Austrian counterpart, yeah, you know, it's brutal. Our advance into Belgium is brutal, but what are you going to do? You know, we're fighting to save our lives, basically. This is life or death. It's going to be a little brutal for a while. And guys like von Moltke, he was one of these logical insanity guys. Somebody asked him once, um, you know, what the most humane way to carry out war is. And he famously said, make it quick. Brutal as you want, make it quick. It's our old boxing analogy. Von Moltke was basically saying, knock him out. 
Quick knockouts, that's the, the nicest you can be, even if it's horribly brutal, to make the knockout as quick as it is. So Von Moltke in this case is basically saying, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's terrible, but, uh, you know, in the end, this is going to save lives. You know, you, sh- you hang a few of these saboteurs, uh, you shoot a few of these people that snipe at your troops, and then they stop doing it, and you don't have to burn whole villages down. See how that works? Neil Ferguson, when he addresses this issue, is basically sort of telling us to not be so naive. I mean, we've all lived through, you know, we're in the 21st century now. We've had a long time to absorb the ideas of 20th century propaganda and how it's a legitimate aspect of war. And one of the things you do is perhaps paint your adversary in the worst possible light you can. Again, something that the Germans weren't quite getting when the 20th century was brand new, that they would get much better in the Second World War. Ferguson in his book tells a story where he talks about, you know, the ways in which this propaganda were used. I mean, he talks about how the British newspapers would take photos sometimes from stories that had nothing to do with this war. In one case, stories that had photos from Russian pogroms against Jews that happened before the war, and then just, you know, captioning the photo with something that says it's from this war. I mean, no one had any idea. You show a bunch of dead civilians and say, this is what the Germans are doing. Ferguson writes, quote, But pre-war photographs of Russian pogroms genuinely were reprinted to, in quotes, illustrate stories of German behavior in Belgium. The Sunday Chronicle, he writes, was one of many British papers which alleged that the Germans had cut off the hands of Belgian children, while the former scaremonger William LeCou related with ill-disguised relish the, quote, wild orgies of blood and debauchery, end quote, in which the Germans allegedly indulged, including the, quote, ruthless violation and killing of defenseless women, girls, and children of tender age, end quote. Ferguson continues, quote, other writers had great fun imagining 16-year-old girls being, quote, forced to drink, end quote, and then, quote, violated successively, end quote, on the lawn before having their breasts, quote, pierced with bayonets, end quote. The bayoneted baby, Ferguson says, was another favorite image. J.H. Morgan even threw in the charge of, quote, sodomy of little children, end quote. But even Ferguson is forced to deal with the reality of the situation that this stuff wasn't manufactured out of whole cloth, and that being a Belgium in the you know, line of German advance during this time period was a very dangerous position to perhaps find yourself in, and perhaps of no fault of your own. Ferguson writes, quote, Although the Entente press wildly exaggerated what went on in Belgium, there is no question that the German army did commit atrocities there in 1914. According to evidence from the diaries of German soldiers and other reliable sources, all the advancing German armies executed civilians, including women and priests. Altogether, about 5,500 Belgian civilians were deliberately killed by the German army, most of them in the 11-day period from the 18th to the 28th of August 1914, and at least another 500 in France. The Germans also used civilians as human shields and razed numerous villages to the ground. In one case, an 18-year-old girl was bayoneted to death. There were also numerous rapes in occupied France, end quote. John Keegan, who obviously feels very strongly about this, um, goes out of his way to point out that these are not, you know, sort of ramshackle affairs, that these involve lots of troops sometimes, that these executions are not done by special execution squads, as will be the case in the Second World War sometimes, but by regular units of the German army. He writes, quote, 
The victims included children and women, as well as men, and the killings were systematic. At Tamines, the hostages were massed in the square, shot down by execution squads, and survivors bayoneted. The execution squads were not, as were the action groups of Hitler's Holocaust, specially recruited killers, but ordinary German soldiers. Indeed, those who murdered at Anden were the reservists of the most distinguished regiments of the Prussian army, the Guard Regimenter Zufus. End quote. And the Belgians would have every right, you would think, wouldn't you, to wonder as they're living through this where their protectors are. You know, they signed these agreements that said that their independence was guaranteed by the greatest powers of the age. Where are those people right now when the Belgians need them? All they see are the German army marching through and burning things and perhaps shooting people you know. The answer is they're on the way. The British are in the process right as we are in this story of landing troops on the continent to aid the French who are finishing the last bits of the necessary ingredients so they can launch an offensive. The Russians are shocking everybody by putting together enough units to at least attack eastern Germany and remind the Germans that you can't just leave your eastern border undefended and throw everything against France. We're still here. And the Austro-Hungarians are about to find out exactly why the Serbs have such a ferocious military reputation. All this is going to happen pretty much simultaneously. And it's going to be the first real consequential experiment to test a hypothesis, a sort of celestial, if you want, or cosmic hypothesis concerning the question of whether or not, you know, if you do it enough, you can beat the violence out of a society or a culture or a people or maybe given the globalization you know that this time period helps usher in maybe a world and the answer is that it depends on how hard you beat them i guess no one's been beaten very hard yet in this story the belgians are but an appetizer to what modern warfare is going to be like modern warfare between the great powers on the planet the first experiment in this hypothesis of beating the violence out of societies is on the way. If war is an addiction to the human species, what's about to happen is the first dose of shock therapy to see if we can be cured of it. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. The address is at Hardcore History. You want to help the podcasts? We'd really appreciate it. Here's how it works. It's very simple. Just buy your Amazon.com products through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com, and Dan and Ben will get a percentage of what you spend. And it helps these guys out because they are nice young fellas. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. A buck a show. It's all we ask. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show. Get there firstest with the mostest. I think that's the phrase that made me cringe during the editing process, listening to the show you just heard. Because I could almost hear uh, 5, 10, 15,000, I don't know how many avid Civil War buffs, American Civil War buffs we have listening, but that's going to be a sore point with them. And I could tell when I listened to it during editing, I'm just going, oh, do I really want all those emails? I didn't attribute that quote to anyone. I just said a Confederate cavalry commander, but it was supposedly, allegedly, legendarily said by a guy named Nathan Bedford Forrest, a controversial figure even today, but that's not unusual among Confederate generals, and it's not even unheard of among, you know, Union Northern generals. 
Forrest is maybe in a class by himself, but he's not controversial when it comes to acknowledging his military genius. He's one of the best American generals in this whole period in U.S. history, and he's an innovative cavalry commander. He knows and has already absorbed the lesson that most European cavalry commanders, even in the First World War, when it breaks out, that they haven't absorbed yet. Forrest realizes that you can't use cavalry the way it's traditionally been used, you know, through its entire history up until that point. It's just too vulnerable now. The weapons have destroyed a lot of what cavalry could do. So Forrest stripped down the job of cavalry to the bare minimum. What does it do that nothing else can do? And it moves people faster than anything else can do. So he used it for that. He essentially had an elite unit of mounted infantry, and he would transport these people to vulnerable and important spots, tactically important areas, dismount them and use them as infantry, and then use the horses to skedaddle out of there before a superior force could catch you. It's a very modern way to use cavalry, and really the only way that it could survive on a modern battlefield. And of course, the battlefield that Nathan Bedford Forrest was trying to keep his cavalry alive on, nowhere near as deadly for anyone, horses especially, as the battlefields would be in 1914. Those battlefields are on the way. The appetizer's over. The main course is about to begin. This greatest army in the world is about to run into what is probably the second greatest army in the world, France's, and the probably in terms of bang for their buck most elite military force most experienced military force in the world all these germans marching on france great trained troops who've never been in combat except against belgians they're going to run into a british colonial force that's tiny but that has so much experience that there's almost no room for any more you know unit honors for these units because they've fought in so many parts of the world so long and so often they're not coming to this war you know to learn on the job they've already done this job many times they're going to be the only truly really experienced troops in this conflict which will make them to get back to our boxing metaphors able to punch above their weight class they're going to give a lot better than their small numbers probably indicate they would but can anything stop this german steamroller you know I've often been asked by people how large the army that defended Imperial Rome was. And at its height, the high number you usually see is 750,000 men. So the entire Roman Empire, that's not one army, but the entire Roman Empire's you know, total number of soldiers throughout the entire you know, borders and interior of the place is maybe 750,000 guys. 750,000 guys is also the upper limit number, as we said in the show, that Napoleon may have used in his famous and forlorn invasion of Russia. So that's a, a pretty big number. Just to understand what's bearing down on this small British force that's landed on the continent and this French force who's waiting to find out what modern warfare is really like, the low number is 750,000 Germans just simply marching through Belgium. The high number is 1.5 million, and that doesn't even count the troops facing the French along the traditional fortified 120-mile border that's normally the invasion route. You have the equivalent of the entire armed power of the Roman Empire at its height using the Belgian road systems to fall on northeastern France. That's an amazing blow. What happens when... The irresistible force, you know, runs into the immovable object. 
Well, we'll find out if either one of those titles turns out to be true in part two of Blueprint for Armageddon. Okay, one last note, added much later, by the way, to let you know that the program you just heard is not identical to the version we originally released. We did something with this program we've never done before because it's crazy hard for us to do and went back and actually sacrificed work on the next Hardcore History show to get into this one and, and clear up one thing and fix another to improve clarity and accuracy, actually. And hopefully we have a better program out of it, new and improved, version 2.0, whatever you want to say. I wish I could do that with every program, although, as has been pointed out to me, I'd still be working on show number one to get it quite right for you folks if they would let me. Nonetheless, always seeking to improve, and hopefully with the update to this show, in a small way, we have. Thanks for everything, folks. <laughs>